What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 61 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise at Credit UK and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh. And as ever, I am joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. An exhausted Samuel Lewis. Holy shit, dude. How many albums have you listened to in the last 24 hours? <laughs> um, I have heard... I think nine albums <laughs> since this time yesterday. <laughs> that, that is hilarious. Um, I'm sorry. That is fucking hilarious. <laughs> and, I've done, and I've done 13 since Friday afternoon. Incredible. Mate, I mean, mate, if anything, what an absolute commitment. I mean, mate, you are Thomas Graveson in that Everton midfield. You're putting yourself <laughs> about, you're putting the effort in, you're making your voice heard. Mate, I love it. I really appreciate you've done this. What an absolute niche 2005 um reference that that is that is absolutely to go over the heads of anyone under the age of 27 yeah. that has like a specific memory of that season where Thomas Graveson was really good and then immediately went to Real Madrid and stopped playing football and disappeared <laughs> into a black cavernous hole um but yeah man um nah, it, was, it was enjoyable like I was saying to you like I was saying to you off mic I needed to get it done and I just had the chance to my first week back in school and everything this week and it gave me, an op- gave me a chance to really sit down and um, read some books and listen to some music. And it was still a bit of me time. I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. I feel like I, like I learned a lot as well. We are fortnightly rock and metal podcast sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. We are available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we will be on there. And with me mentioning that, please subscribe slash follow us wherever you are. Uh, and also, I, I'd like to mention, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and a comment for us. Only recently <laughs> have me and Sam discovered, actually, that on Apple Podcasts, uh, me and Sam actually don't even show up. If you search rock and metal podcast uh, in the search, bar at the top so for anyone who does listen to us on apple podcast thank you i'm not entirely sure how you're finding us on there but i, I we appreciate it massively and if you could leave a rating and a comment hopefully we do then end up in those uh, search bars subscribing to us on youtube slash following us wherever you're listening is the best way to support us on our last episode uh, me and sam spoke about the news we reviewed pupil slices debut record mirrors as well as ever self-titled album and we had a chris meet with the entirety of Pupil Slicer. Quick mention, actually, uh, Sam, I'm not sure whether you've seen this on social media, uh, Pupil Slicer's debut album, as we expected, yeah, is just man. doing the rounds. I mean, everyone is talking about it. I love to see that, Sam. A, a, a band that were literally previously completely unknown in terms of the wider aspects of rock and metal. And now, literally, uh, my timeline is just full of people discovering them. Holy shit, this record is insane. I, I always love to see that, man. And, and, and a more fitting and more deserving band that I couldn't name. No, I, complete, I, completely, um, I completely agree. I think, I think having them... Having them having them release this incredible album, I think it, it's got this energy and this brutishness that has clearly taken the alternative metal world by storm. I mean, it's, the moment you listen to this, you feel like you have to talk about it. Mm. Uh, I'm glad that people are having that same instinct because it's got all the energy of like a bag of rats in a meth lab. Swarming, yeah. yeah. piling riffs. I think it's just extraordinary. On this week's episode, uh, we are going to discuss some news that I'd like us to cover. Me and Sam are going to do a description of our selected records from taking part in the music writers' experience. Plus, we've got reviews on the new A Day to Remember album, You're Welcome, and the new distant EP, Dusk of Anguish. Plus, uh, this week's Chris Meats was an interview with Rob Town, who is the head of Stampede Press, as well as a former member of the band Panic Cell. 
just before we get into the news, uh, well, we're going to start with the MWE, actually. So before we get into music writers' experience, Sam, one of the great things about me discovering metal and my love for it early in my 20s is that I'm always finding bands that I previously had no knowledge about that I should go back and listen to. So I interviewed Sam, uh, Rob Tan, as I just mentioned, who is the head of Stampede Press, and he was talking about this previous band, Panic Cell, that I... I'm not familiar with at all. Sam, had you heard of them? The name does ring a bell, but I can't say I've listened to them. Well, as it turns out, Sam, Panic Cell were, I mean, relatively speaking, this like massive deal uh, in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Like to the point of Rob Town has like been there when Metallica are like about to headline a festival, as in not like, oh, he played first on the third stage. I mean, like he's been like side stage kind of thing like he's finished like playing a panic seller finished like kind of sub headline in the second stage or headline in the third stage walk around the corner and Metallica are about to go on. Uh, he has had a panic sale with like this really, really big deal. Their final show was headlining a stage at Sonisphere Festival. I can't remember which stage you said it was, but I literally had never heard of them before. And as it turns out, they were this like really, really big deal in metal and alternative music. So I felt like a little bit ill-prepared and ill-informed. However, Rob Town, he was telling me that he specifically, when setting up Stampede Press, didn't go with the, didn't pitch Stampede Press to bands as, hey, I was one of the members of Panic Cell, which kind of makes sense as to why I wasn't aware that he was in a band of such success because he that wasn't something that he championed as part of Stampede Press. But um, yeah, if, if you are in, uh, interested, if you're listening to this and you're interested in the realms of PR, how to get into it, the trials and tribulations, or, or you're an up-and-coming band, Rob Town has got this real like plethora of experience and knowledge on how you should handle that situation and what that should look like. So stick around at the end of the show for that discussion. Sam, we are going to kick off the episode with a depiction of the music writers experience. For those who aren't aware, the music writers experience is something that started in February and basically you select was meant to be 28, but we decided to do 30 albums that you've never heard before. And then you write one tweet about them, summing up your thoughts. Little twist we did on it. Uh, I selected my own first 15 albums. Sam then selected his uh, first 15 albums. And then we did each other's final 15 so Sam selected mine and I selected his. Sam, there are th- we've given each other three albums that we would like to discuss in not tremendous detail with how much we've got to discuss today, but in more detail than we had on Twitter. Uh, Sam, I've gone for Meshuggah's Obzen, Mastodon Crack the Sky and Kanye West College Dropout. What about yourself? Um, I want to go for Death's Human. Uh, Radiohead's The Bends mm. and Tiny Moving Parts Swell. Amazing. Chucking Tiny Moving Parts in at the end. I didn't see that coming. Uh, Sam, I will let you actually start with Death. Um, so I'd heard I'd heard of the band Death through association for several, several, several years um, because they were this legendary death metal band and I'd always put them mentally in the entombed, enslaved, morbid angel category of bands that I could appreciate from a distance and contextually understand led to the formation of some of my favourite bands but 
knowing sort of in my heart of hearts that I probably wouldn't ever really delve into their discography for fear of not liking it and then mm. having to have that awkward conversation with myself where there's this legendary death metal band that die down in joy. Um, it's sort of like trying to talk about grindcore and then saying, well, actually, I didn't really think Napalm Death were that good. It doesn't feel like you you feel like you lost, you're losing sort of yeah. like a metal badge of some mm. description. So I kind of like avoided them and just left them as this image in my head of this legendary death metal band, the Metal Hammer champion and all this sort of stuff and thinking, they're cool, they led X, Y, and Z. So when this opportunities came around I decided to sort of um, to delve in and once I found out the album that, I, that most people recommended that I listened to I chucked it on and it is utterly phenomenal <laughs> yeah. absolutely absolutely utterly phenomenal this is um, it, it's it's Sepultura with like a progressive twist um, it's thrash it's um, down treading slamming hardcore style riffs with a, a thumping, beating heart through, but with a real, real progressive touch and just some absolutely phenomenal guitar work and bass lines. This is, um, for the time that it came out as well, for the genre that it spearheads, it's utterly game-changing considering it's in the early 90s um, for what it's actually doing. It's, it seems like it's a compilation of progressive metal, death metal and um, light thrash all jumbled together with a genuine songwriting. And that's what I found Death did that others didn't. Whereas I was listening to, I listened to like a Morbid Angel album, I listened to Altars of Madness. Um, and I did I did listen to this briefly when I was putting together the, um, the greatest of all time metal list. And everyone has this in like their top 50 influential metal albums. But frankly, three, three decades later, it's not a great listen. It's, it's important, it's influential. Whereas this, this is like, I feel honestly, I feel like it's timeless. Um, I can hear Machine Head in this. I can hear Sepultura in this. I can hear Early Pantera in this. It's just um, a phenomenally written album. And one of those ones where it's legendary in the moment and also going back 30, 40 years later, you're like, I, I completely understand why that stood the test of time. And I don't think you could really do that with a lot of metal albums, especially not niche metal albums like this one is. Um, and that really took me by surprise. Um, I was really, really impressed. I'm going to check this shit out. Oh, I, I think I think you would adore this album, Chris. Mm, um, I think it I think it absolutely speaks to um, a lot of the bands that you love, but not in like I said. I don't think you'll come away with this thinking, "Oh yeah, I understand now why it's great," and this relates to lots of these bands that I actually love. I think it's good enough to actually enter your playlists in the same way that when you first discovered Slayer and and, and mm. these sort of bands, but like. They, they become bands you actually enjoy and listen back to. I really do think this has a chance to do that for you. I was very, very impressed. Holy shit, I have to listen to this. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, listen to I, this. I, I really, dude, you I got me, you sold me. You sold me. You did send me that one song, and I was like, holy shit, dude, the, the fucking tune <laughs> yeah, of this guitar. I, I, I was like in, but obviously haven't made the delve into the full record. Um, You got me. I'm going to get in on that shit. Um, but myself, Sam... Uh, Meshuggah's Obzen. Mate, have you heard this album? I'm assuming you have uh, rather than just Bleed or have you yeah, just heard I've, Bleed? I've, 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 no, no, I've, 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 heard, I've heard it once through but not regularly. Mate, this album. I mean, considering the style of music that I now adore, it's kind, I, I kind of feel like it would be a disservice if I didn't choose this album to speak about because yeah. I don't like using the term ripped off, Sam. I, I think that in a lot of cases, that's quite a lazy critique. But, I mean, yeah. this album, 
has undeniably influenced just this laundry list of bands that I currently adore, as well as some, let's just call it what it is, a whole genre in gents. I mean, I, I put that tweet oh, yeah. out. I put that tweet out, um, I think it was like last week, taking the piss with that winking woman, being like, oh, my sugar invents Obzen, and then says to gent bands, you're not going to rip this off, are you? And I'm like, no, not us. And I, I put that out as a joke, and I don't like using the term, as I've just said, ripped off. And there's no way of knowing whether bands like Volumes, After the Burial, although I wouldn't call After Burial a gem band, of course, a Vale of Maya would have existed without this album. But it is undeniable that this has just been a vital part of their styling. And I always say After the Burial there and After the Burial, that there's parts of gent stylings, especially in Dig Deep in their music. But, you know, they're a they're an extreme metal slash uh, deathcore band. But... You listen to the, the, the pace, the ferocity, the way that this rhythm section has been recorded on this album. And it's like inescapable that extreme metal has just thrived from off the back of this album. The, mate, the rhythm section of Thomas Harkey on drums, Dick Lovgren on bass, Martin Hagstrom on rhythm guitar. Whether we need to have a conversation, Sam, further down the line, perhaps we could do a whole episode about it, of whether that's the best rhythm section in terms of production value since Far Beyond Driven. I don't know. Like, it's something that we can discuss because it's the intensity, the speed of it all. Thomas Harkin drums. I, hey, I mean, I, I'm struggling here, as you can tell. I don't know how. It is unbelievable. Um, you can pick one of Viola Meyer's new songs, Outsider. Listen to the opening 30 seconds of that track and then go back and listen to Obzen. Like, the influence is just crystal clear. Um, the same can be said for a lot of current songs. And even like even like Whitechapel, if you listen to the guitar production of The Saw Is The Law, go back and listen to Obzen's title track. It is, like, just abundantly clear that the influence of this album has just lived. And I tell you what, mate, this album came out in 2008. It could have come out yesterday. This album. It sounds so, so modern. I've just been really... I'm so grateful for the Music Rise experience in the sense of it's given me an opportunity to, to really dive into this album. I don't know if I ever would, as well as the next album we're going to talk about. I don't know if I would have ever dived into this album if it wasn't for the MWE. And that would have been criminal considering the music that I listen to on a regular basis now. This album's amazing, Sam. I mean, it's it's just laid a blueprint, as you say, hasn't it, for like an entire decade of music following it, and as well, um, so with some of the some of the musicianship in a technical way, the kick pedal movement on Bleed, <laughs> and yeah. the way that it, 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 and the way the way that the time signatures adjust and shift. I mean, I've watched this, I've watched the drums being played to this and slowed down and recreated, and it still blags my head. I, I don't understand. I don't understand how people can do. I don't understand people can play to this level um, because some of the some of the rhythm structures here are just absolutely absurd. And and I think it's a fair it's a fair shout in terms of um, technicality and, and degree of difficulty. Um, there's there's nothing quite like my sugar. Um, the time signatures and the changes and stuff. I mean, 
there's that there's that joke, isn't it? Like um three three guys headbanging some sugar all at different tempos and transitions and they're all headbanging correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like they're all they're all headbanging different time signatures because one's listening to the guitarist, one's listening to the drummer, one's listening to the bass. It's just, they're just extraordinary. Um the the band are phenomenal. And um I'm not surprised you enjoyed it at all. Um because it's 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 just fantastic, isn't it? And mm. they're then they're, they're never they're never going to transcend, unfortunately, and get into like a metal mainstream. But I actually think they're perfectly suited where they are. Yeah. In terms of being this niche hero band, in the same way that like Animals as Heroes have become. Um and Animals as Leaders, sorry. Animals as Leaders, yeah, Animals as Leaders, you meant? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. So. Uh, there's, because the, I think that that market and that fan base is just extra passionate about those sort of groups. So I'm I'm not even remotely surprised that you enjoyed it to the extent that you did. Can we give me your second choice? Uh, I'm going to go Radiohead, The Bends. Uh, we briefly spoke about this on we our did. last podcast. We did, mate. Please give me more detail. Um, honestly, expected to hate it. Not just dislike it. Honestly, expected to hate it. <laughs> um, did deliberately chose it to prove myself right that i was like see <laughs> like it is shit i like that um, um because like i always thought that motorhead were motorhead radiohead were these um uh this this band that i just the 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 vibe of which i would just never be able to sit with and enjoy for a length of an album uh, but the band is a masterpiece there is no other way around it um in terms of the songwriting um for the time and the well actually not even for the time we don't need to frame it contextually the songwriting period this is one of the greatest rock albums at least of the the last 40 years like it's extraordinary like it came out in 1995 and there's nothing that sounded remotely like it really before or since and bands have been trying to write what Radiohead mastered by the sounds of the bands and have come nowhere near there are just some utterly gorgeous songs on this album um and it's worth it's worth mentioning that this isn't like their hit selling album because creep came on the album before but it has just just from start to finish from planet telex to the bends high and dry flight plastic trees as an opening is just four of the great rock songs of the last 30 years just sort of punched together um because tom york has a as a haunting voice that perfectly suits both the rock stylings of Radiohead, but also when they draw it back, they write these brilliantly affecting um, melodic songs that are simultaneously uplifting and melancholy. Um, it's it's sort of like a post-grunge style as well, which really contributes to this sort of this this atmospheric vibe that they give up. I am. Um, Head over heels with this album particularly, and I know that their later work has been criticised in comparison. So I know that this is probably the the one hook that I'm going to be attaching myself to in terms of liking Radiohead and probably enjoying OK Computer, which is the album after, and that's supposed to be quite good as well. But this is um this is a must listen, like not not just within our industry. This is a must listen period. I think was it quite openly obtuse nature anytime overbearing for you not on this album because this it's not remotely obtuse at all 
Oh, right. So okay. This, this, I've always yeah, yeah. seen Radiohead pitched as the, like, really, really out there, like, Marmite band. If you get it, you'll, you'll struggle to f- foresee yourself living without it. But if you don't get it, you'll think that this is a disgrace and how is this popular? No, this is, this is pre-obscurity. Um, right, okay. This is them... This is them just writing twelve, legitimately terrific rock songs. They they didn't they didn't experiment as much like until later on, it appears anyway based on this when they get to the mid tier of their career in the early two thousands and Kid A and all that sort of stuff. But this is where they um, bridge the gap between the they don't sound like any rock band you've ever heard, but also having a complete awareness of what makes a great rock song being put together. I've really, I've never heard a rock album like this, and it's it's fantastic. It really, really, really is. Mike, you got me again. I mean, okay, let me Mate. fucking check this shit out. Yeah, it's 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 probably like, honestly, like outside of the the genre that uh, that we we adore so much, it's it's probably like it feels like a top five essential album of the nineties, like for any genre, like it, it, it's really that important. I think, like alongside Oasis and. Whatever, whatever other bands that you want to put there, especially for British rock, I, I, it's head and shoulders above anything else that came out afterwards. Honestly, it, it is really I can't I can't praise it enough. Yeah. Again, I mean, I came in expecting to love this. This is unbelievable. Sam, Mastodon's "Crack the Sky," a fucking out dude. More than any other band I've listened to in the past few months. I can't wait for me and you to be in a room together listening to this band. I think they're amazing, Sam. I think they're like... They're great. I think they're like out of this world good. Um, I mean, how many times have I said it, Sam? I, I don't like progressive metal. But after listening to this album, maybe I just don't like progressive metal that doesn't sound like Mastodon. Because <laughs> I think this album... Is amazing. Um, I mean, mate, The Last Baron, which is the final song on the album, it's 13 minutes long. Now, you know, you would probably see this out, see the, the song lengths on this album and be like, we can't give this to Chris. He will, like, <laughs> he will hate this before he even presses play. But Sam, I am just entrenched into every second of this album. I'd, I've heard it a few times and I used it yesterday to kind of soundtrack a run that I had that, you know, a few miles. And I just found myself just traveling through these soundscapes. And only when I'm listening to a really, really brilliant album, am I not thinking about the fact that I'm actually running and oh God, I'm getting tired and fuck this bit's uphill and oh, thank fuck this bit's downhill. I, honestly, I can't even remember the run. I was just this album, mate, is is really really great. Um, the the sound manipulation and tempo sweeps from Troy Sanders, my god. I mean, me and you said that he was really good on the Killer Be Killed album, wasn't he? If you remember correctly, yeah, he was. But this, this is amazing. Um, I mean, his vocals on Quintessence behind these spidery lead sections from Brent Hines, you know, just. Just speechless, and I think the thing that I really, really like about Mastodon is that there's there's a song they've done called "Show Yourself," 
which is on Emperor of Sands, an album that I think it came out in like 2014. It's really technical and it's really like harsh and powerful, but actually it's also like really, really desperately interesting. And I, I don't think Sam I've ever heard. And I'm saying this off the top of my head. Maybe I have, but immediate thoughts. I don't think I've ever heard a band that are has as heavy and also really interesting as Mastodon in terms of their manipulation of time signatures, sounds, tempo, bass beats. I just, I, I think they're incredible. Um, it is an, a, a real desire of mine for me and you to just sit in a room with drinks in our hand and just listening out for Drum Fills by Brandaila. Who you said oh, to me? The drummer. You oh, said, yeah. God. You you said to me before because I kind of mentioned Mastodon to you, and you were like, "Oh, mate, the dr- even if you don't like their music, the drummer is unbelievable. He will blow you away." And mate, he is. And I, I don't. I've never played the drums. I don't know how to play the drums at all. But I pick up on even in my very very limited knowledge of what it's like to actually play the drums. I pick up on his control, his inventive use of toms and cymbals. Mate, Brandaila is fucking incredible and and Crack the Sky. He has moments on like the title track and Ghost of Corelia. I mean, incredible. I think that this album, I, I just want to sit in a room with you and, and pull it apart moment by moment. But not just that, because now, obviously, I've heard Crack the Sky and it's wicked. So I'm thinking, right, okay, let's check something else. Eh? Mate, mother, the mother load, from once more around the sun, mate, it's got like a massive, like crescendo, huge metal chorus that's like really anthemic, and they've, they've fused it into this really like expansive prog metal song. Mate, I think Mastodon, I, I can't believe that it's 2021, and I've been into metal alternative music for like six or seven years, and now. I'm saying like, hey, dude, you know, Mastodon are amazing. Uh, yeah, mate, crack, <laughs> crack the Sky is excellent. And I've got a feeling that it's not going to be their best album for, I've got a feeling that they're going to have somehow another album in this list that is just going to, that's going to have my ass. Um, I know that Leviathan, which came out in like 2000. The, the, I know Leviathan is really, 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 in fact, I think Leviathan got album of the year. Uh, for 2004 and mate that's in like in the year of end of heartache which uh, you know how much i love that album so I, I, I can only assume that there's going to be another album in here that is going to absolutely blow me away um yet yeah, mate i won't take up any more of our time just basically repeating the same point mastodon are amazing they're one of the best metal bands of the 21st century by far and and this album is stunning uh, just before i let you finish off with your third choice you ever heard crack the sky sam yeah, I have. It was um, Metal Hammer's album of the year in two thousand nine. Yeah, amazing. So fucking good. Oh my god. I remember reading. I remember reading the review, and they were like, "This is like life changing." They were that. They were that like superlative about it. It was like glowing. What I love about Masters, on just a side note, is that they don't actually follow the tropes of a normal metal band at all. No, because their vocalist doesn't do deathcore, death metal screams, nor does he do the high pitched melodic stuff. And you talked about the drummer. Never really uses double kicks at all, um, like ever. It's all fills. It's all 
um, like these breakbeat style to show every out there. You don't need to have like Dave Lombardo's feet and Joey Jordison's hands to play metal. And you don't need to sound like a generic death metal singer. You don't need to sound like Mitch Looker to make a successful metal band. It just doesn't need to happen that way. Um, because Mastodon, like I love, I love the vocal work on Mastodon. I love it. There's like an echoey atmospheric quality to his voice that just no one can um, replicate. And they're just absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm delighted you like them. I, I did actually think it would be tough, a tough sell for you that you'd really have to sit down and um, throw yourself in. I feel like if you weren't on a run where you just listened to that album, you might have had might have had a tough time. I think it's one of those um, they're, they're one of those bands that you really need to connect with. Um, but I'm I'm delighted that you have. I'm going to let you finish off, mate, on... And I love that you've picked this, because this is one I picked for you. Tiny Moving Parts, Swell. Mate, I mean, I already know how fucking great this album is. Chat to me. So it's a pop-punk album, isn't it? But also, it's not at all a pop-punk album. Mm, mm. I'll start there. And Chris, obviously, if anyone's listened to the podcast for longer than, well, this episode, my views on pop-punk have been made very clear. Um, over the last decade is that I think that it's I like the really terrific pop punk and then despise the swell of mediocrity <laughs> that goes below it yeah um, or like do you know what I mean so I, I am big on peak Green Day and peak Blink-182 and I am low on literally everything else yeah apart from it seems tiny moving parts um, because they are a terrific pop-punk band that features enough of the pop-punk tropes to identify as that, but also go far beyond it, in, to the point, in fact, where I've, I don't think I've heard a pop-punk band that are this talented. No, I, I think you are right. I think you are right. The, the ceiling for what these guys could do in terms of songwriting creation is just extraordinary. Um, the guitar work in a pop-punk song this is this is um it's like it's deliberately catered to me in the sense that oh we want Sam to enjoy this pop punk band are we gonna have to chuck some lead guitar in there and some breakdowns then just in the middle of stuff just to keep him guessing and that that's exactly what this seems to be because it's pop punk but there's an element of hardcore vocal into it as well but not in the way from the um the chorus stylings it's it's melodious and enjoyable and catchy but also deeply heavy and complex and almost progressive in the transitional styles. I feel like some of the aggressive parts of this are like reminiscent of Cancer Bats, Gallows, in terms of like the, the high pitch riffs in between the sort of song structures and transitions and things. And there's, <laughs> there's just some songs on this, like the opening three tracks, including, um, including Swell, the title track, and, and uh, just... Honestly, honestly, from 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 start to finish, it is just a absolute monolith of a record that I completely, completely took me by surprise. Mm. I, I can't be- I can't believe the, the 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 actual musicianship on this alongside alongside genuine pop punk greatness. It, like I, I I just don't I don't understand how it's how it's this good. Opening with applause, smooth it out, feel alive and caution, and wildfire. The first five songs. Just put it be sensational. Um, and the minute this riff came out, this sort of transcendent um sort of 
sort of picked riff, but it's fast paced as well. It feels a bit metalcore esque. And then it kicks this pop punk stuff. I've never I've never quite heard an album like this that combines so many different elements from different different genres. They don't sound like anything else I've ever heard within this genre at all. And they completely stand out from it. This is this is an, this is a pleasant reminder. This and a couple of other albums that I've listened to over this sort of period. A reminder that you can be successful within the blueprint of pop punk if you just expand a little bit. Mm. If you just you know, you don't just stick to the pop punk by numbers and teenage wrists do this. Oh, they, 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 they go, they go because it's a pop punk album really at its core. If you had to pin it down to a genre, but at the same time, it's not. And it goes beyond that. And it spreads, it spreads the colors beyond and, and stretches the boundaries out. And tiny moving parts absolutely do that because they, there are moments in this when some of the choruses remind me of classic Blink-182 in yeah. terms of the, the vocal style. And there's a bit of Tom DeLonge. It's like, but it's like Blink-182 if Tom DeLonge could like really, really shred. And it was a much better guitarist. Yeah. Um, and it, I also, I also want a world where Travis Barker's playing in a band like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where he could actually sort of expand his his reach and his range and play this sort of stuff. But um, like, 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 like you were saying about Mastodon, I feel like I, I'd just be repeating myself because it's thinking. But honestly, um, for me to enjoy an album like this, it has to be spectacular, and this absolutely is. My Dylan Mathison the lead vocalist and guitarist. He's amazing, man. Um, Don't tell, I, he's either going to also do the lead guitar work as well as, yeah. As well yeah. as the, vo- yeah. <laughs> yeah. He does both. He, yeah, does, he does, he does guitar and lead vocals. He's amazing. He, he's like, he, he, I, I think he's just, he, he's like, I mean, for me, in terms of fronting pop punk, in terms of pure ability-wise, I don't mean in terms of star power or profile. It's like, for me, it's Billy Joe and then Dylan. Wow. That I've heard. Because... I couldn't understand that. Be- because of... And obviously, it helps that Time Moving Parts are also a three-piece, as our Green Day. So, obviously, that, that comparison is much easier for me to make because they're a three-piece. But I just think in terms of pure ability, I, I, Dylan, Dylan McDyson is really really up there because mate i mean yes they, like you said yes they are a pop punk band but no one sounds like tiny moving parts like really it, it, no no one sounds in the same postcode as this band no one near i cannot tell you how much i love that you have picked tiny moving parts for that and uh, and again just like mastodon for me the whole point of MWE, right, is to hear a record that you would have never heard without MWE. In fact, I know you wouldn't have heard this before because you and um, Noise owner Jack and me all have a group chat. And I put Tiny Moving Parts in there before. And I was like, lads, you know, check this band out. Even you, Sam, and their pop punk, you'll love it, trust me. And obviously for yourself, you might have caught you when you were busy, but I know you would have looked at it and thought, yeah, pop punk, and they're great. I bet they are, Chris. You know what I mean? But MWE... <laughs> MWA, perfect chance for me to force you to listen to an album that you would never have heard otherwise and, and you love it and that is awesome and Tiny Moving Parts are great and the best thing for you Sam is they've got like seven albums and they're all wicked they're a really really brilliant band man they're, they're absolutely one of the not it's we don't even need to say it. they're one of the best pop punk bands in like in the top three 
to have come out uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm going to finish off, Sam, and I'm kind of going to fleet over this because I'm concerned about time. Um, my final one I wanted to discuss was Kanye West, the college dropout. I think Kanye West, Sam, we, we think about Kanye West now as this kind of superstar, and I think that he's like, especially in Western civilization, he's like a step below Michael Jackson in terms of notoriety for, you know, his, for his fame, especially in modern day. I, I do believe, especially particularly Western civilization. I think anyone over the age of 13 years old would know who Kanye West is. Unless you, unless you're going to ask like the queen, you know, I think anyone that, that would, would be paying attention to music will have heard the name Kanye West. And I think, especially with, you know, Kanye West now, he's gone on Joe Rogan and the, the conversation of running for president. And he's got certain political views that, people obviously up to them can either agree or disagree with. I think Kanye West now is a celebrity of such status that we actually forget how gifted he is as a musician. And the college dropout, Sam, is absolute concrete evidence that forget, put put a pin in Kanye West, the person. Kanye West, the lyricist. Kanye West, the inventor Kanye West the producer is really really a special kind of once in a lifetime appearance the college dropout is this kind of depiction and kind of description of dereliction of duty of American society regarding college students in terms of the lack of support they receive, especially post-graduating. And it, it, it is this kind of, you know, storybook tale of, hey, if you ever felt like you had to sell drugs to get by in college, I'm here to tell you that you're still a human being and you're not the worst person to ever exist. But it's more than that. It's telling about the heartbreak of relationships when in university. It's telling about the mental anguish of trying to, you know, live and upgrade your social standing as well as be a grade A student. I believe, and I don't know whether this is actually correct, but it might be there's a song in here called Never Let Me Down, and it might be the first time that Jay-Z and Kanye West ever did a song together. I'm not sure whether that is the case, but if it is... On that song, you can absolutely see there is something special between Kanye and Jay-Z. And perhaps there would have been people that heard uh, when the, this album first came out in 2004. Perhaps there could have even been people that would that would then say, these two are going to make an album together one day. And it's going to be amazing. Just like Watch the Throne was. Looking back at this album now, The College Dropout, is a fascinating timestamp considering what we know Kanye West is now but it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's an error in 16 minutes long. It does occasionally get a little bit long in the tooth, but for the moments like We Don't Care, All Falls Down, Spaceship, Jesus Walks, Slow Jams, it's got Jamie Foxx on as well. You, uh, you just find yourself listening to Kanye's flow and 
the, the kind of manipulation of the bass beats behind him. It's a really, really brilliant album. Uh, it's one of the best hip hop albums I've ever heard by a mile. And I also listened to Kendrick Lamar's Damn in my MWE as well. And that was really, really good. For me, it's nowhere near College Dropout, Sam. Uh, you heard it? Uh, no, I listened to uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy for my Kanye West album. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's my favourite Kanye West album. That is, I think that's my favourite hip-hop album of all time. I absolutely just kind of worship <laughs> that album, and I'm really glad you uh, you listened to it. Mate, um, if you want to listen to a 14th album this weekend, um, make sure it's uh, The College Dropout. I mean, he's, he's, he's terrific, isn't he? There's a, there's yeah. a reason he, 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 he arose to this level of... Um, of fame and it's it's him it's jay-z it's tupac it's biggie yeah it's it's that it, that that's the that's the list and then you go then you go from separate members of the clan and all that sort of stuff and and public enemy and mwa and whatever but that kanye west is in that upper echelon that eminem talks about when he's when he's listing when he's listing all the rappers that he cares about, that he's alongside and everybody else he doesn't give a shit about, he's in he's in that he's in that category as well now. And there's there's two or three albums that he brought out that are absolutely key for this generation. And also um particularly notable in in the context of stuff over the last few years about what it means to be black yeah. in the twenty first century. Of, yeah. And 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 that gives that as obviously two two white lads from Wolverhampton. Um, Kanye's experience of what it's like to be black in Chicago is is not just it's a world away in every sense, metaphorically and geographically, and his insight into that lifestyle and that relationship with with everything from levels of government to other people to social cues and all the rest of it, he gives an insight into into all the all the stuff because. People look back and talk about um, Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles as the musical visionaries for their age, for black culture. And I think people like Kanye West and Beyonce and Jay-Z are these for hours and Frank yeah, Ocean you, and yeah, all, you're right. all, all this sort of stuff. And in 20, 30 years, people will be talking about these artists as a reflection of culture as we knew it at that time. And obviously outside of his music career, Kanye West has left a lot to be desired in terms of the decisions he's made, things he said and whatever. Um, but if you can, if you're able to separate the art from the artist, which is always tough, then it can be difficult and it can be difficult to ignore the gravity of his career, at least until 2010, at least that sort of pit. Well, 2011, if you could watch the throne, but that, that three or four album stretch from college dropout to watch the throne with Jay-Z, it's, it's pretty much peerless as far as an individual rap career goes. Sam, we're going to break into the news. Um, I am so delighted to say this is one of the segments we're going to talk about. Architects, for those that wish to exist, Sam, secured number one album in the UK last Sunday. What a sentence that is, man. There isn't a great deal that we can talk about here. We've already discussed the album in a full episode for over an hour. Sam, I'm so, so happy for them. They deserve this so much. I mean, how brilliant is that for British metal? That Architects, the band that wrote Hollow Crown in 2009, you know, the band that wrote Lost Together, Lost Forever with songs so brutally heavy, such as Cancer on, 
and they have reached on album number nine, by the way, they've not just climbed, they have absolutely been cannoned to number one in terms of, mate, holy hell, I think it finished 18th in the UK album chart. And you can tell me whether you agree with this. I feel like anyone that doubts the importance of Holy Hell and that, or that it's not one of the great British metal albums of the last decade, I feel like objectively you are massively incorrect because Holy Hell's existence allowed architects to garner enough fans and not just fans, but passionate fans that desperately want to see them do well to lift them 17 places in the UK album chart in the space of one album. Bring Me the Horizon finished third with Sempaternal, second with That's the Spirit, and then first with Ammo. Architects have gone from 18 to one. Sam, how can we quantify how excellent that is? It's it's a confirmation of what we were already saying, isn't it? That architects have taken the leap because rather than us quantifying what this means, this leap has quantified what we already knew. Um, we were saying that architects have taken the leap to be a headline band in UK festivals and they've been doing so for the last two years. The numbers now back it up. Mm. They're a number one selling um, band. This isn't as well. This isn't a live album. This isn't a compilation. This didn't take them six months of a slow incremental build and a slow week. This is this this album came out two weeks ago and they were number one two weeks ago. Like that's that's pretty fucking immediate and that, that's that's a reflection of the growth that they've had. Um, talking to you about how I heard um, Animals on Radio One at four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, metal metal in Britain is on the up at least through uh, the lens of bands like Architects. And this is a confirmation of that. They absolutely deserve to be it. They're a f- terrific band with a narrative that we've discussed ad nauseum over the last couple of months. And this is a um, a deserved moment for one of the most hardworking and endearing metal bands. And now, thankfully, most successful metal bands that we have of our day. Just before we just before we break off, do you feel like like do you agree with me that for those that wish to exist, landing at number one further cements the importance of Holy Hell and the greatness of it? Yeah, I think I think that that is logical because um, it's a reflection of the growth that got to that point. Um, because I can't assume that every number one is based on hearing animals and black lungs on the radio or. Spotify. I can't. Yeah. I can't. Ima- I can't imagine that that's the sole reason that that album has shot up. Um, I think it's the growth of the fan base and metal fans, if nothing else, are eternally loyal. Yeah, and will will push through push through their push their bands when they have have connected with them as an audience. And I do. I think it's a. I think it's a reflection of what of what the band have turned into now. Um, and that is a huge huge band within the context of our country. I think it's marvellous. Moving on, Sam. Uh, this will be a good one. Adam Levine said there's no rock bands anymore. Yeah. I'm going to go straight into his quote. 
It's funny. When the first Maroon 5 album came out, there were still other bands. I feel like there aren't any bands anymore, you know. That's the thing that makes you kind of sad, is that they were just they were just bands. There's no bands anymore, and I feel like they're a dying breed. And so I kind of, in a weird way, there are, I mean, there are still plenty of bands, and maybe they're not in the limelight quite as much, or in the pop limelight. But I wish there could be more of those around. Similar to Corey Taylor, Sam, I think people have taken this wildly out of context. Adam Levine is not going to know who Rolo Tomasi are. He's just not. No, he's not. What, what Adam Levine is saying here is there's no new bands in the charts at the moment that are of the same profile level or same notoriety level as those that were in the charts when Songs About Jane came out in 2002. You know what, Sam? He's right. We, we, yeah. all know, we all know and have accepted this. And one thing that you know, I, I tweeted about this, and I, and I said, I'm really shocked the guy who sang Payphones at No Dying Wish are. Because, you know, I know that Adam Levine here isn't disputing the existence of bands. He's, dis- he, he's saying, oh, it's a shame that there's no really large profile new up-and-coming rock bands exploding through the charts anymore. And he's right that there isn't, as we've just said, this is Architects' ninth album. Architects haven't just released for those that wish to exist and we've kind of captured them and just kind of catapulted them straight to the top because they've exploded into fame like Slipknot did when they released the debut and then Iowa came out in 2001. That's not what's happened. And, and I kind of saw people on Twitter saying, ha, Architects got number one, have that Adam Levine. And I thought, that's not what he's saying. And, and you, you, I don't think you understand the point that he's saying because the point that he's making is indisputable, Sam. What do you think of this? I, I, I don't even know what to say. The, the, the vocalist of Maroon 5 doesn't think that there are any other albums, any other bands that are at the same level of, as Maroon 5. And yeah, fair enough, because... 16, 17 years ago when Songs About Jane came out, there were like bands like The Strokes and Oasis yeah. and, and yeah. things like that at the top of the top of the charts and and Green Day and Sum 41 and and that that's that's just the world that you two uh, and that's just the world that we were living in. Um those bands are not releasing material at this present moment in time and are not in the in the in the in the charts because the pop culture has changed. Like, I don't, I don't understand why he, he didn't say anything remotely controversial as far as I, 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 I saw it. No, he didn't. And, and, and also, in the context of what he is, the circles that he moves in, the music that he pays attention to, he's not talking about People Slicer. <laughs> is no, he? no. He's not. He's, he's, he's not fucking talking about that. He's talking about the fact that since 2010... There has been maybe one or two "quote unquote" rock bands that have been chart toppers that are that are pop uh, that are in pop culture that are in popular zeitgeist, and that is Arctic Monkeys for a bit, Imagine Dragons for a bit, and Mumford and Sons, and that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that those are the those those are the bands that are in uh, that are in the pop culture zeitgeist, and you know maybe maybe Royal Blood for five minutes, um, but when. 
when when Adam Levine and Maroon Five released Songs About Jane, which is a good album, by the way. I'm not going to hate Maroon Five. That, it, no, uh, that that album's songs, good. So, songs About Jane's a really good album. Um, when they were coming out in the early the 2000s, there were lots there were lots of bands that were breaking out. There was a big indie explosion that happened over the next four, five, six years from Franz Ferdinand, The Strokes, to a variety Arctic Monkeys to Pigeon Detectives to a variety of bands that broke out Razor Light broke out and were in the charts for a lot of time because it swept pop culture at that moment. Rock bands are not sweeping pop culture at this moment. They they are not. They may one do maybe may one day yet again um sweep pop culture. But we're at the moment we live in a sort of um a moment that's very similar to the nineties. Um with when the 90s went through a plethora of boy bands and girl pop bands and people were like, what's happened to every other type of music? Why are we all just listening to Aqua and Britney Spears? That's just what was popular for like five or six years. And then bands came back again and this is just what happened. Um, Adam Levine's words should not be treated as anything other than what Adam Levine is commenting on, which is in the world surrounding bands like Maroon 5. There are not very many bands the top of the charts that is an absolutely fair crack he's also not talking about Raul Tomasi like you mentioned he's not talking about um small indie bands I don't think he has any awareness of that he wasn't talking about them in 2005 either that's what, not what he's referring to so yeah I this isn't like the, the, this this narrative and this culture of insert famous person says something that briefly touches on the state of rock music and is then pulled away from what it actually means and used as a, as a straw man to set fire to, to make yourself look and feel better. I just think it's fucking ridiculous. Um, this isn't a comment on metal fans, rock fans, or any other type of music. It's just the majority of people at the top of the charts are artists now, solo artists predominantly. That's just a reflection of chart music right as we speak. I, I don't, don't, see the, don't see the issue with it at all. Sam, we've discussed ad nauseum that in the last 20 years we have made very, very few band superstars. We've accepted this. That doesn't mean that rock and metal is dying. They're both doing perfectly well. It's just the profile isn't the same level as it was 20 years ago. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Sam, if metal not being the most popular thing in the world means bands like Shock fucking Shine Down are less likely to give it a go, but let's keep it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair enough. And I think that the way that the world is, is different now has diversified the way that people get in contact with their own music, which has made it more difficult for rock bands to, to permeate. Whereas bands that are, are, well, artists that release singles allow themselves to be pushed through the charts in a much easier fashion. Whereas bands that rely so much on album content and live sales are not going to make a dent in, in chart music in the same way that singles are. That's not their remit. It's it's not that that's no longer the 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 yardstick for success for a rock band. It just isn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, cool. Um, but the bands that Adam Levine are talking about are not the bands that that the people are getting annoyed about. Adam Adam Levine would call Five Seconds of Summer a rock band. Yeah, or Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. That that mm. that that what he means is really. I think it's I think it's I think it's sad that we don't have more than one person in a music video. Now it's all artists. That's really the extension of what he's saying. 
isn't it nice when back people just get together and write music instead and get in, and are in groups this is not a comment on bands in general because there are hundreds and thousands of great bands out there that are doing perfectly well and they should be celebrated and also who gives a shit <laughs> yeah, like, there like, is that as well like let, let's let, let's be fucking honest what 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 the fuck does adam levine's comments on random groups that he's not seeing or whatever have any impact on the rock and metal world at all they don't it's absolutely absolutely utterly ridiculous and taking it personally it gives an insight to the level of insecurity that some rock and metal fans feel all the time it's sad Similar, mate, just before we veer off, similar to Corey Tyler's comments two weeks ago, they've just been taken completely out of context on that quick matter. Uh, I've just picked up the new uh, cover of Metal Hammer um, and they've done a, a feature on the 100 greatest songs of the 21st century. Corey Taylor selected Bleeding in the Blur by Code Orange to be in the list. He does listen to metal. He doesn't listen to rock music, and the same yeah. the same way as Adam Levine does listen to pop music. He's a he's a, um, a a judge on The Voice. He listens to pop music and music that's permeating popular culture. He doesn't listen to Pupil Slicer. That's okay. People have just com- taken his comments completely out of context. And it's great, Sam, that Foo Fighters, Yumi at Six, Mogwai and Architects have all had number one albums in the UK. That is tremendous. I absolutely adore that. That still I that still doesn't mean that rock and metal is going to approach its late 90s, early 2000s level of profile when Rage Against the Machine, uh, Oasis, The Strokes, Foo, oh no, I'm going to say Foo Fighters again, Queens of the Stone Age, and so on and so on we're all dominating the charts yeah. it doesn't mean that it's just great to enjoy that in the moment and the whole ha architects are number one take that adam he doesn't know architects are <laughs> he, he didn't say that to the uk charts he's probably, he's probably just referring to the context of american bands as well yeah. like yeah. it's not even talking it's ridiculous it, it is absurd it is absurd um we are going to break off sam onto album reviews we are going to start with the data remembers, you're welcome. It came out March 5th, the Fueled by Ramen. Uh, we didn't receive the album early, which is why we're reviewing the album now. Um, it is a data remembers seventh album and the follow-up to 2016's Bad Roy, Bad excuse me, 2016's Bad Vibrations. As we record this, we are unaware as to how the record has performed in the charts because these things are usually announced early Sunday evening. So perhaps as just as me and you finish up here, Sam, uh, we'll find out how this album's actually done in terms of sales. Um, and and just, let's just discuss this first, Sam. For me, this is the first album where a day to remember Sonic Sound has gone to a 50-50 split between melodic rock pop and metalcore. Usually it's been... 70% metal slash metalcore, 30% rock pop. Now that has lifted to 50-50. And I think, Sam, what surprises me most about that is that people are surprised that this has happened. I'm not sure how much response you've seen to this, to the album on social media. But people, yeah, I've seen people commenting like, oh, can't believe it. I just remember I've gone in this direction. 
can't believe they sound like Imagine Dragons now, which, by the way, it might be the laziest critique I've ever seen. They sound nothing like Imagine Dragons and on this album. And when when people do that, I think it just completely dissolves their argument immediately when you just kind of dumb something down just to the smallest thing relevant to the argument you want to make. It's just absolute nonsense. This album sounds nothing like Imagine Dragons in any way, shape or form. But even away from that, Sam, I don't understand how someone could hear a song like We Got This on Bad Vibrations and not see where a day to remember we're going. And even if, even if you forgot what We Got This sounded like, they're signed to Fueled by Ramen. Do you know who else are signed to Fueled by Ramen Records? Paramore, All Time Low and 21 Pilots. I don't understand how any A Day to Remember fan could not have seen this coming. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Sam, I'm going to put this to you. Once the metalcore band with great pop choruses start getting really, really big, eventually they grow to a position where this kind of shift is demanded of them. What do you think? I think it's inevitable. It's absolutely absolutely inevitable. And and let's not pretend that a day to remember came out and they were like fucking Dimu Borgia. Yeah. Like that that it, it means a lot to you. He's off one of their earlier albums. Home it's sick, a pop punk yeah. acoustic Yeah, it's off it's a pop punk acoustic ballad. They've been writing songs like this their entire fucking career. I I wanna stay I wanna stay just for just the sake of argument. I think the the report like you, the reports of their change is utterly overblown. Yeah, massively. For the because for the last five years, a day to remember's contemporaries have not been after the burial and Avenged Sevenfold and Slipknot. It's been Fallout Boy and State Champs. Uh, that those are the those are the sort of bands that are in the Paramore and, and, and others are, um, among them. Those are the bands that a day to remember are really contemporaries of. And this is just another 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 version of that. And this is another extent to that. And whether it's but it's demanded of them. I'm not too sure demanded, um, but I would absolutely assume that the conversations are, we'd like this album to be very successful. So we'd like songs to be on there that we think will make the album successful. And we'd like you to maintain your identity, but also we'd like there to be a clear um, pop hook mm. in some of the lead singles. And if, you've, if you're going to bring out a single, please choose one that's got a, Please choose a one of your melodic numbers, because there's clear here. Um, there's, there's 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 metal songs here, yeah, and there, there are there's enough metal here to match up with any of the previous heavier songs in a day to remember's previous um, discography, um, because last dance and resentment are as heavy as second sucks. Quite yeah, last easily. chance, last chance to dance specifically, yeah, and they're they're metal songs. And yeah. they're clearly there to cite or at least make the band feel good about some of the other songs in there because it's clearly a combination of, of the heavy and the harmonious. And that is not a problem because the Data Member have always been that. If you think Data Member are, Data Member, in my opinion, have never been a metal band, they are a pop punk band with heavy sections more than they are a metal band with pop punk sections. I think that they have always been a melodious band first and foremost. 
because you look at the fans that go to a day to remember fans, that go to day to remember gigs, and their pop punk bands, pop punk fans of which a day to remember is just one step further for them. It's not metal. It's not metal fans of which a day to remember is softer. It's more fans like you than it is for me. So you got into metal, pop punk first, and then got heavier. Yeah. So a day because to of remember, a day to remember, I should mention. Yeah, exactly. So a day to remember is the one step past uni at six that you enjoyed first and that got you into metal. Whereas for me, I got in the other way. I went at ICDC into Metallica and I would have to go backwards to get to a day to remember in terms of my taste. Whereas you, at one point in your life, came a little bit further forward. And I think that's that that's the difference. And I think that reflects a day to remember as a band. No one who's really super started their metal fandom liking Sabbath, Slipknot, Slayer is going to move along to a day to remember, I don't think, to the fandom. I think it's about fans who grow up listening to Fall Out Boy, Blink-182, Green Day, State Champs, and then listen to a bit of a day to remember and start getting into it that way. That's That represents their musical journey. So I've always thought that they're a pop-punk band with heavy sections first. I mean, when they first broke out, when they first broke out, Metal Hammer did a feature on them, called them Pop Metal, and they broke out because they did a cover of who? Kelly fucking Clarkson. So let's not pretend that a day to remember have ever been a band where it should be surprising that they have pop songs. If anything, they've always been this band and they're just more confident in doing it now because they've built up a huge fan base. And I just point out they're on a record label that would appreciate that musical direction to begin with. Um, so on the actual album, my issue with it is not that it's poppy. My issue with it is that three or four songs on this just aren't very good. Yeah, I, I would actually that, completely agree. This album isn't a bad album. I think this is a perfectly serviceable album that has terrible moments. I completely agree. Can we talk about some of those terrible moments? Uh, is one of them the entirety of Bloodsucker, Sam? <laughs> it is. That song's um, fucking terrible. Ones that stuck out to me, um, and I wrote that, um, the songs just border on cringy at times. Viva La Mexico is horrendous. <laughs> Mind Reader is horrendous. And Fuck You Money and Looks Like Hell are bad songs. Um, they're just bad songs. They're deliberately intended to be cheap, low-calorie, catchy little songs for teenagers to sing along. And I think that a day to remember are better than that. And they prove that they're better than that when they actually write these songs like the ones on this album, and just to point out that I'm not just going down um, the heavy uh, element of it, saying, oh, this is just about our fan. I actually think High Diving and Rick Wall are good songs. Yep. I think they are good songs, and I wouldn't mind hearing them in a rock club uh, or a bar or whatever, and if they're played live, I wouldn't despise it. That's perfectly fine, because they've shown, at times, they can really write a good pop rock song and a good rock song, and really as well, a decent metal song. What I don't like is when is when the formula is too off, and it goes too much in one direction, and it sounds like five seconds of summer, and it sounds like this generic cheesy. I mean, there's a there's an acoustic song on here, and it just sounds it sounds like a Taylor Swift song. Um, it's the classic, um, overly American pronunciation of words while the chords changing behind. And it goes to a little bit of an uplifting chorus. And it's deliberately intended for 13-year-old boys and girls to be listening along to. And I know that that's the audience. So obviously, I'm not into that. The only, the only, I just find that difficult to swallow for a band that's clearly showing on this album that they're better than that. 
they don't need to go down in that direction for this to be popular. They don't need to sacrifice um, that much of themselves because you absolutely can't tell me that they're going to enjoy playing some of these songs live. You can't tell me that. You can't. You can't tell me that a band that wrote Second Sucks and Downfall of Us All and um, I'm Made of Wax, Larry. What are you made of? You can't tell me that a band that wrote those songs are going to enjoy playing Fuck You Money to 30,000 teenagers. You can't tell me that they're going to do that. Um, so I, I know that it's a deliberate ploy for radio and Spotify and things like that. And I don't think they need it because they're already selling out arenas. That's where the disappointing thing is. Um, there were lots of decent moments because they're a good collection of songwriters and it's a good album in places but it's also weighed down by some cringy and cheesy moments that let, let it down overall. But to reiterate both of our original points, to act like this wasn't as inevitable as the end of the Titanic is completely misguided and misjudging. No one has ever, I think, a reasonable person, has ever listened to a day to remember and thought, man, I don't hope, I don't hope they get any lighter. And it's like they're already... <laughs> pop band they're already this it's it's insane to me but i don't mind it i don't mind it chris uh, I, I don't know if that's surprising at all um what? i want to i don't want to turn this back on you a little bit because you're you're a huge day to remember fan at least you have been for yeah. about eight eight of the 11 years i've known you you've at least been a humongous day to remember fan absolutely is this the least ex- is this the least excited that you've been about a day to remember album not in the build-up and B, is this the least enthused you've been about it after listening to it? This, I, I should say that I always say my favourite band of all time is 1994 to 2009 Green Day. After that, it's been a day to remember. A day to remember were pivotal for me in exactly how you described it. I was all time low, Yumi at six, May Day Parade, and then it was a day to remember and it's like, oh, I actually do kind of really like the breakdowns and the really heavy parts and, and the, the brutal songs and uh, songs like My Life for Hire and I Made of Wax Larry, What Are You Made Of? Maybe I should try Parkway Drive and there it is. Then it snaps and then it's like, oh my God, this is actually amazing. And now I'm going to go on to XYZ. So first of all, a day to remember have been massive, have been pivotal in me and my, and my journey throughout alternative music. And I understand that there are some hardened metal fans that will think they're terrible. And I understand why they would think that, but they've been really pivotal um, for me. To answer your question, Sam, I believe this is the worst today to remember album I've heard. It's also the least enthused I've been about today to remember prior to listening to and after listening to an album because of the things that I said to you, Sam, because they're signed to Fuel by Ramen. So I knew... I knew what this album was going to be purely based on their label choice. There is no way Fueled by Ramen executives are sitting in a room while signing a day to remember and expecting them to do another common courtesy. They are fully, fully expecting them to do an album where the lead single is Degenerates, which is a basic four chord song with a big bouncy, nice, clean chorus that just like you said, 30,000 teenagers will eat up and sing back to them. So I knew what this album was going to be. And as you said, this is not a bad album. This is a perfectly serviceable album with some terrible moments. Bloodsucker is awful. Outside of its jazzy electric guitar outro, it's this kind of lame, meandering rock song that sounds like a returning band from the 90s would do to sound down with the kids. 
Um, the song itself isn't bad, but the chorus melody from Jeremy McKinnon is actually infectious on F on Fuck You Money. But the narrative is so fucking vomit inducing, and that caught that lyric of wait till they get some fucking money. I mean, it's just so eye roll inducing. Um, you know, I think it was only money and looks like hell aren't awful, but they're so totally inconsequential. I just can't believe there weren't bonus tracks. And I feel like they're here purely because the album took so long to came out, to come out, sorry, that a day to remember had to kind of beef the track list up to, to kind of give an excuse as to why the album took five years to actually hit shelves. Um, but there is some great stuff here, Sam. Last Chance to Dance, like you were alluding to, gives off that big stomping second sucks vibe. And how many better mosh calls have you heard in the last 18 months than when I'm gone, who's going to carry your casket? I mean, it's it's awesome. That massive breakdown comes in. I'm all about it. I'm with you, mate. High Diving is the best song on this record. And it's a pop song in each and every sense. High Diving is a pop song and it's fucking wicked. The chorus hook is beautifully written from the extended accent on the lyric on high diving to the kind of one direction clean guitar bounce. No one can deny how infectious high diving is. It is it's one of the it is one of the better songs that they've written. And then some you've got resentment and permanent, which which are classic a day to remember sat, tracks. They could literally have come out at any point in their career. It's the ABC structure, hard opening riff, McKinnon sweeping verse, big chorus, breakdown, crescendo. If you're in a day to remember fan, what else could you want? That's a day to that is a day to remember. That's been a day to remember since they were doing the plot to bomb the panhandle um, in 2007. On for those that have heart, you know it, that that is a day to remember. It's what they've always been, and I kind of mentioned it earlier. But degenerate Sam summarizes everything this album is supposed to be a basic track that translate well in arenas, especially to the 13 to 19-year-old demographic, which in a lot of cases in the music industry, Sam, is where the big money is. It's where the big merch sales are. It's where the live ticket sales are. And it's where the album purchases are because they get obsessed and it's their new favourite thing and the posters are all over the wall. It's where a lot of big money is. Um, This is my least favourite album that A Day to Remember have done. And I'm not certain it's going to serve its purpose in terms of knocking them to the top rung of the ladder. But it is absolutely not awful. And if you were surprised that A Day to Remember took this step, I'm really not sure what you've been listening to from them over the last few albums, to be honest. This was inevitable. And it's not the end of the world. It's not awful. You know, good luck to them. Hope it does it incredibly well for them. I am not so sure on that. But a day to remember, I'm fueled by Raman there with all time low, 21 Pilots, Paramore, and some other like big solo artists that I'm not particularly familiar with. This is a day to remember now. You are not going to get another Common Courtesy. And you don't need to, because you can just go and listen to Common Courtesy. It's a great record. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, to close off episode 61, Noise Podcast, before my interview with Rob Taylor comes in. Distant, Sam. Their new EP, Dusk of Anguish. It's out on March 19th via Unique Leader Records, who are also home to Humanity's Last Breath. That'll come back up later. 
Um, it's a follow-up <laughs> to the Dutch slash Slovakian Deathcore Six Pieces last EP, Dawn of Corruption, which came out last year. Sam, I mentioned Humanity's Last Breath there. You can see where I'm going with this, can't you? Uh, these are the kind of band that would potentially not exist without them. Am I correct? You absolutely are. Um, other bands that I included in a sentence of my own notes, including Humanity's Last Breath, also include Alpha Wolf, Chamber, Shadows ah. Intent, and Slaughter, to, and Slaughter to Prevail. Yep, yep, I'm into it. I'm feeling it. Um, mate, you hear the influence of Humanity's Last Breath in that first 30 seconds of the offering. That low-tuned, slow guitar stomp that just slams across. Um, it's like a mixture for me of Humanity's Last Breath and Lorna Shaw. This EP is just scabrously fucking ravenously brutal. Um, too far for you? Uh, no, I think this has, this has moments that I really, really, really like. Um, you can also hear influences from the Book of Revelations, from the Bible, because this is fucking the most biblically heavy, <laughs> yeah. apocalyptic-sounding album. I mean, I read the concept behind this album and, like, laughed out loud. <laughs> yeah, they... is, yeah. <laughs> because it's like, we've created this fictional world where everything is desolate and horrible, and we're just going to describe it with the backdrop of just some of the most unsettling and heavy death metal you've heard yeah. in the last couple of years. Um there's a sledgehammer guitar sound to this that I don't know how you actually produce this. I don't know how you do it. Um, because it, it, it's so strange. The guitar sound does actually sound at the front of the mix. It's sort of flitting into the background at times. But when you when, when you actually slows down and you hear the riffs and the, the breakdowns, there's this real metallic clanging sound uh, that accompanies it alongside the actual um, pummeling drums and stuff. Um, what I want to say is about this, it's incredibly ambitious. Yes. Yeah. There's dabbling in different sounds, both electronic and symphon uh, symphonic. On the opening track, Dusk of Anguish, you can hear that like sort of electronic keyboard doing arpeggios in the background and then flicking to this breakdown with the symphonic um, orchestral sort of backdrop behind it as well. Um, the transition of blast beats with a classic death metal sound. I actually wrote down this is the sound of murder uh, as part <laughs> of my review because that, that's that's what that's what it is. It's, it's to me, it, it's um, it's a mix of the unsettling and the brutal here, and that is um, is is right on the edge of 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 of, of what I enjoy. I think it's literally this is the heaviest thing I would like. So I really liked Humanity's Last Breath as well. Um, the combination of Eternal Lament with the, the return of pig squeals, mate. The breeze. vocals, mate. The vocals on the Eternal Lament, like they are so heinous, I can't even describe them. It is, yeah, they're all those pig squeals, like 90 second mark. It, it borders onto a gimmick. Fortunately, yeah. they, fortunately, they don't repeat themselves at any other point because if they overdid that. I would just consider this as a piss tight gimmick. It, it, it's heavy for the sake of how heavy can we possibly make it and put it on tape. Um, fortunately, it doesn't do that. The, Sam, the final mosh call on this song is the most evil thing I've ever heard, including <laughs> Slaughter to Prevail's Demolisher. This is... Do you know the bit I'm on about? Yeah, I do. But I, do. I, think, I, think, I think he's screaming, I am death. Mate, it's atrociously evil 
it is like terrifying. I was creasing when I first heard it. I was like, oh my god, this is this is like the end of the world in in a in a song. Yeah. It is I mean, it's awesome. I love it. Uh, I love that part. It, it is wicked. You alluded to this earlier, mate. When the three guitarists, Nori, Vladimir, and Isa are all playing the same pepper chord, like after that pause in Cryogenesis, mate, it's yep. so, so crushing. Um, a shout out, mate, by the way, for Loki Keo from Alpha Wolf on Cryogenesis. How sick is he on that song? I knew it was him. I knew it was him. Yeah, because yeah, the it's the guy he, from the Alpha moment, Wolf. The moment he started fucking on the mic, I was like, there's no way they've got the same vocalist. Uh, doing all these sort of different stylings. But actually, what it did for them is it offered the EP a completely different, um, completely different shade and tone for them. And um, because, I don't know about you, 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 you tell me, would a 12-track album of this be drag, be a bit of a drag? I think there's a possibility yeah. that it would be a tough yeah. listen to hear 9, 10, 11, 12 of this. They would have to really sort of be ambitious and complex and really mm. open and really go put some thought into their song structures to make that last. But having having the addition of the of the, the guest vocalist there really, really shifted the tone and it almost gave you a bit of a breather from from the first couple of songs because it is um it is a wildly challenging listen. Um but at the same at the same time it's really really enjoyable. I like the fact that this I mean, it's like seven, seven different death metal subgenres at once, isn't it? Yeah. Like, there's there's elements of sort of black metal, deathcore, death metal, hardcore, and a grindcore, a whole host of, whole host of stuff just sort of competing against each other. It's it's underground metal at its absolute most diabolical. Um, it's sort of like Black Dahlia murder on steroids. This is, um, they're. They're terrific. If 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 you're in if you're like I said the same thing for pupil slicer and and it bear, it bodes well because if you um, if you clicked on this um, podcast for the day to remember review because you're a massive day to remember album we're talking about this album afterwards chances are you're gonna like one or the other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so if if you're if you're a fan of the if you're a fan of the first band probably. Um, Probably consider probably consider giving this one a miss unless you listen to it in daylight. Um, but <laughs> with all your otherwise with all doors locked. Yeah, but all your curtains open, just sort of like constantly looking at the skies, and sure it's okay. Um, because this is this is a tremendous. I tell you what, mate, it's a fucking laughing. It's a fun listen. It's oh, so mate, violent. Yeah. It's it's so it's so violent, and I actually enjoy it in the same perverse way that I think people enjoy horror films. Yeah, and root for the murders and the deaths and stuff, and you enjoy the blood and the uh, the thrilling nature of the narrative. And I've watched, I've watched, I've watched horror films with friends where you 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 end up rooting for the murderer, and that's an enjoyable experience because it's like watching like it's like what I imagine support in Barcelona was like in the early two thousands, and you're just sitting there enjoying this monolith just destroy worthless peons. <laughs> Um, and, and, and this this feels like that experience where I'm just enjoying the chaos and the madness and the blood night bloodthirsty nature and the ridiculous mosh calls. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's not something I'm going to listen to a hell of a lot because I think, I mean, if you actively enjoy this, I think there's there's like a small percentage of you that's sociopathic, um, but it's it's a thoroughly enjoyable listen, 
And once again, a reminder that um, there is a underbelly to the metal world that makes bands like early Slipknot look like Coldplay. And, and that is that is always a refreshing reminder that if whatever you think is the heaviest thing you can hear, there are other bands that have taken the heaviest thing you think you've heard and used it as the melodic section of their three-track concept album on the destruction of humanity, which is what Distance have done here. Bloody good at the minute, and it's some extreme metal. Mate, if you're if you're an extreme metal fan, the, the choices are absolutely limitless. And there's no excuse. There really is no excuse. And I, I saw um a tweet that you shared the other day actually that was that was bang on and it was like if you're complaining about the lack of great hardcore albums then you've literally heard nothing in the last 10 10 10 years absolutely it's 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 true about extreme metal if you're saying there's no great extreme metal bands anymore it that just tells me that you're you've been listening to nothing but napalm death for 25 years and you've got no legitimate opinion on the matter um because since we started doing this podcast again in the, in the last three years how many great extreme metal bands have we covered? Is it 15? Is it 20? Yeah, yeah. Like from from like Venom Prison and Carnifex to Humanity's Last Breath and Distant to Chamber to Diamond Constructs, Alpha Wolf. Um, the, the list, Knock Loose, Malevolence, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And these are just one another band to add to the plethora of, of many bands. Um, yeah. Uh, absolutely. If, you, if you're into if you're into extreme metal, but uh, extreme metal, listen to distance and then um, lock yourself in a dark room for nine hours afterwards, in case you feel like committing crimes. <laughs> I'll tell you what I love about this uh, EP, Sam, and I, I, I actually the deathcore genre, the deathcore genre in general at the moment, the way that bands are using atmosphere in the recording process, it's a big, it's actually a, a, a big deal for me. Like in these six songs. I feel more captured and more surrounded in atmosphere than I did in the whole entirety of when we did Mark of the Blade by Whitechapel. I think yeah. I think the double into electronics and symphonic atmosphere is really, really allowing Deathcore to move into this into this new area. I mean, Sam, there is a band called Brand of Sacrifice, right? And they have just released an album called Lifeblood. And I'm telling you now, it's the best Deathcore album of the year. There is no fucking way that we will, that anyone will release a better Deathcore album this year than Lifeblood. And it does what I've just said. Electronics, symphonies, plays about with them, as well as rapping it in this absolute fucking scarring, slitting, Deathcore monolithic sound. And it just... It's expansive and interesting and brutal and it's unlike things we've heard before. And I said to you before, man, um, holy shit, Diarty's Murder's next album, I don't know what they're going to do because if they do Human Target again, they're going to seem like part of the old blood and all due respect and love to Diarty's Murder, who I think are a tremendous band. But it's very, very, very interesting where they go next because... how much more modern do you think this sounds than Human Target, Sam? Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that it sounds more contemporary than Human Target, but um, Human Target still hits a larger demographic, which will probably bode, bode better for Thyatis Murder down the stretch. Um, you know, 
there's a chance Die Artist Murderer our generation slayer and they just produce the same album every three years yeah and man. their fans are the, the fans are a die hard um, in love with them and they'll play um, 2,000 to 5,000 seat venues for the remainder of their career and they'll achieve this like legendary live show reputation and, and that sort of stuff and I think I think that's exactly where that they are they are going to end up I think I think Die Artist Murder could absolutely experiment in this sort of direction and include atmosphere and stuff with that and actually sacrificing any of the heaviness and the darkness that has obviously made them as successful as they are because you know um uh, you can't i can't i can't imagine um if i are actually writing like a, a melodic song really no nah, nah. stylings or anything like that so they can't really go in that direction but you listen to what shadow of intent did in shadow of intent did in 2019 what bands like chamber and distant are doing now uh, what bands like venom prison are doing and if I was if I was a member of Thyatis Murder, I would feel a competitive itch to get back into the album, uh, get back into the studio and produce an album that reasserts us as the best deathcore band on the planet, and which they absolutely have the ability to do. That is where we're going to call it a day for episode 61 of the Noise Podcast between me and Sam. However, my interview with Rob Town, owner of Stampede Press, is coming up right now. So this has been a a really, really big, long episode. We hope uh, you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much if you are still with us. Uh, Remember to, whatever platform you are listening to us on, give us a subscription or a follow. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and, and a review. We are going to be back in two weeks' time. For now, my interview with Rob Town of Stampede Press comes up right now. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Rob Town, owner of Stampede Press, as well as uh, many other ventures in the music industry. Rob, I cannot thank you enough for your time, man. How are you? Oh, very well, Chris. Um, Thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward to uh, talking to you. I always really love doing these types of interviews in the sense of I haven't got a, a script in front of me of, of a list of questions that I'd like to ask obviously when, when I'm interviewing a band there's there's certain things that I'll give myself pointers for that I'd hate to miss but for yourself someone who's in the music industry I, I love doing these chats because we can really delve into your your background and and how you got into the position that you're, that you're currently in today and I guess there's no better way to start that than by asking when was the first time that you remember really acquiring a love of music more so than music being a background noise on the radio and actually you'd start to take a real vested interest in the industry? Oh, blimey. Um, well, I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can remember the first time. It, it, was, it was when I was a child. Um, right. Mum and but we did, I didn't have a hi-fi in my, my room. I, I grew up as a child of the 80s. And so the hi fi um, for most places during that time was in the lounge and, um, and it was right next to the TV. And more often than not, I wouldn't be watching TV. I would be sat in front of the, the hi fi, which was like that tape deck and the record player. And uh, I would just be listening to my mum and dad's music or my brother's music, you know, it's like Queen, Blondie, um, Finn Lizzy, Deep Purple, all, all sort of classics. Uh, with headphones on while they'd be watching TV. And mum and dad always sort of thought that I, would, I wouldn't do anything sort of 
conventional when it came to um, a job or, or whatnot. They were fully prepared for me to to do something a bit not tr- traditional. Um, I mean, my dad used to play keyboards in bands, and mm. I think he played with the Kinks and, and things like that back in the sixties. And so, when I decided uh, in the in the early two thousands to quit my traditional job and join a band called Panic Cell. They sort of cautiously said to me, Are "You sure this is what you want to do?" And I was like, "Yeah, I, I've got to do it. This, this is this is my calling." Without wanting to sound too cliche, and they didn't they didn't hold me back. They just they said, "Go for it," and they supported me all the way. And yeah, it it, it just it just felt like I had to do it. That's all I can say. It just it felt like the right thing to do. So yeah, if that makes any sense at all, it, it makes that's, complete that's, sense. That's, you... that's a very quick, broad explanation. No, no. <laughs> Did you take your your love of music through um, school status? Like, were you someone that was in secondary school uh, that had your mates around and saying, "Lads, have you heard around? Have you heard yeah. about this band, etc.?" Because yeah. for me, it, it, for myself, I wasn't like that. I actually only really started to get a vested interest in music, specifically alternative music, right in my early 20s, funnily enough. I, I didn't have that experience in school. And that's something that I actually look back and, and somewhat regret because I, I think there would have been something really uh, personable about the idea of be you know coming to your mates and you, you know if you were in school in the ice so i can only imagine what it was like the first time you heard master of puppets and you and your friends <laughs> have got master of puppets on tape and you're like lads have yeah. you heard battery was it that kind yeah. of thing for you definitely yeah i mean I, I would just sort of observe observe what you just said there it's uh, it's always an interesting time i think i think the fit the main thing for me is whatever age the bug bites you whether it's in your teens or early 20s you're still that sponge. Um, you're sort of um, you've n- you're not being tainted in any way. Um, if that makes sense, you literally everything that comes at you is just like groundbreaking. You know, whether it's something like Master of Puppets, where for me I was at school and uh, you know someone had the, the, the double the, the gatefold double vinyl that you, you felt you know it came out and it was amazing artwork and then or it'd be tapes and then eventually it'd be CDs and it'd always be exciting because it always would be something new, you know, benchmarks for me, like, like Metallica, Master of Puppets include, um, Faith No More, uh, the mm, real thing, mm. hearing, hearing Epic for the first time or Rage Against Machine in 92 with put it in the head on, on BBC TV, ironically. And, um, it's all moments like that that they're in, they're in our DNA, aren't they? They just, you never forget the first time you heard, something that's so groundbreaking and it stays with you and yeah yeah so so yeah school was a massive part for me um in terms of like friends collectively getting in the gang and listening to music and sharing music and piracy with tapes and whatnot um it was just it just unfortunately or fortunately for me it just sort of uh, made me maybe deeper want to be in the music business or music industry or i didn't know at the time obviously i just wanted to be in a band that was that was what it boiled down to i just wanted to play in bands and uh, that's why i was never that good at education back in the day <laughs> because i was too busy playing in bands was there one particular band that was a driving force for you that really captured your love or was it this mixture of british heavy metal invasion of diamond head iron maiden judas priest black sabbath it was it was later than that. I mean, I, I I'm gonna be 47 in a week's time, right? And, uh, I still I still feel like I'm I'm that 14, 15 year old back in the early 90s. And yeah, it was a mixture. It was a mixture of things. Um, I would 
oh, I don't know what people are going to think about this, but I would, I would, I would, I'm heavily influenced by American rock. Um, ah. You know, in terms of like Van Halen, um, mm. Aerosmith, that's that's a massive staple for me. But then there, there were British bands going around that time, like um, Little Angels and and Thunder, etc. That I I heavily got into, and, and through them I was able to discover really dive into the depths, dive, dive into the treasures of Finn Lizzie and um, yeah, Iron Maid and Def Leppard, etc. Um, it was just it was just such a fantastic melting pot, and there were so many good releases and so many so many benchmark songs that we still here today and um it's yeah, it's, it's just incredible we're really just talking about it just sort of you know the passion's coming out already uh, yeah i love it, it. Love you it. can tell it. it's amazing um yeah. and we, we're gonna get into your current role in pr but one of the things that i've always really respected about you and i've enjoyed working with you is that your passion and love for the industry and the bands that you work with still very much comes across. I remember working with you um, on Chrysler uh, and you were so happy yeah. that Chrysler were on the Bloodstock main stage. And it was like, and I really got this sense in you that you really genuinely had a vested, believed interest in them. And it was, of you know, it's a job. And, you know, we're here to get, you know, we're here to, for our own interest, but you really, really care even now and you get excited about new up and coming bands that excite you and have potential. And that really, really helps just for, for someone like myself who works with the PR. It helps so much more when I know the PR I'm working with really believes in the product that is being put across. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, as a musician, um, what I experienced with, uh, a band called Panic Cell, that just solidified my need to uh, work in the industry once I, I came to an end with that part of my journey, um, uh, which 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 included many highs and, and many, many lows. Um, but ultimately, going into Stampede, it was literally, right, I want to take all the lessons that I've learned, uh, run a PR organisation, but at the same time, help educate the bands as to what it means to be in a band in in a digital age, and this is this is back in like 2011, 2012. So you know, Facebook is taking over the world. MySpace has been and gone. YouTube is dominating. Uh, Spotify is now coming through, uh, and it, it, it was just it was, even back then it was so fluid and so fast. But a lot of the times I found when I was working with bands, they they didn't have a grasp on what it, they needed to do as musicians in the digital way. So I always included educational sort of um, parts of, of the campaign where I could advise them. Um, but ultimately it's always going to be down to the band, whether or not they want to follow that, that guidance. But I guess um, a big staple of what I do is, is like I've walked in those shoes. I know the highs, I know the lows and it's, you know, here's an opportunity for bands to get some decent press coverage and also learn a bit about the music industry and how they can actively navigate it without suffering too much with bad mental health and, and well-being. And crucially for me as well, also, Chris, is that never to take on too many bands because I respect what the likes of yourself do. And um, I appreciate just how much music you must be sent. So whenever I take a band on, and this goes back to your point about passion, th thanks for picking up on that, but... Essentially, I've got to be passionate about the band, the music. I've got to be passionate about the people that I'm working with. And there's got to be a really good relationship going on. There's got to be patience, kindness, understanding, and general good vibes. Uh, and that's what makes a good PR campaign for me. Um, yeah.
you know, because we've all been there. We've we've been in environments which are kind of toxic and not great for our mental health. And so I've I've you know I've learned a lot over the years. I've got firewalls in place just so I can literally take a band for a process and predetermine whether or not they're they're a they're ready for PR and b are we a suitable match. And if I, you know, if we get past those those hurdles, um, for want of a better description, then I know I'm in a better position to apply PR to to their campaign and approach someone like you and just just say, look, for your consideration, Chris, you know, what do you think? Mm. Yeah, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> absolutely, again, yeah, absolutely does. And I don't want us to get too heavily involved in your current role and the and your ethics behind Stampede just yet because. That's obviously that I've got loads to ask you about that. Um, and I, one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to speaking to you is because for, for yourself, there is a lot actually that I don't know. Um, and, and I think finding that out will be, will be really fascinating for me. So, at what point you mentioned that uh, you were in Bank or Panic Cell and that didn't work out, and it was then that you started that you decided to to kind of use your experience in a band to forge a way of mentoring bands. But at what point did Panic Cell start, and was that a, was that a side project for you while you were also working, or, or was there a point where Panic Cell was your main gig? Uh, well. I... In a nutshell, I, I spent the 90s playing bands, in and out of bands, and I came to a conclusion in 1998 I wasn't going to pay the bills. So I cut my hair and I went back <laughs> to a little, yeah. <laughs> I've got all the cliches in the book, mate, coming out here. <laughs> here we go. Um, essentially, I, I cut my hair. I went back to do some basic education so I could get a full-time job uh, working in um, the computer industry. And um, I spent about three or four years working for a big company and um Learn a load of different skills and tools and whatnot that I, I still use to this day. But as a music creative, anyone, any one of us, you know, who are creatives and, and working with music or passionate about music or whatever it might be, it's very difficult to just put music down. And even though I fell out of love with it for a bit, it quickly came back into my life at the turn of the century. And um, I joined another band, which led to another band, which eventually led to this band called was then known as a different band but it eventually became panic cell and uh essentially things happened really really quickly um a because we were we weren't young but we were young enough and we had a lot of lessons learned so we we hit the ground running we had some good songs uh we got on scuzz tv within our first single um but we got we got to number one in 2004 with a song called save me wow right you know, okay. It was just ridiculous because we were like number one in beneath us, like Slipknot with uh, Before I Forget, and it might be a bit later, but actually it might be in 2005, I think. I think. Well, yeah, wow. was Subliminal Verses. Was that 2004? So, uh, yeah, so, Subliminal Verses 2004, yeah. Yeah, wow, so okay. We, we had that. We had um, uh, Linkin Park with Numb, I think, and then after that, yeah, you had, oh, God, it was just that ridiculous. It was, it right? was, a, fan, it was wow. a fan vote thing. It just really snowballed from there. We had we had a, an email from a manager who watched us on Scuzz TV and he emailed us and says, are you looking for a manager? We'd literally just hit the ground running. We'd recorded an EP and a, an album. We knew people in the industry, so we got videos produced. And we had access to all these things that normally it would be exclusive to just major labels, but we knew the people because 
we just networked. And before I knew it, we had we had a manager. We were being flown off to Austin, Texas, to play a festival called by South by Southwest. Yeah, come back touring with bands like American Head Charge, uh, Disturbed. We were booked oh, for a month long okay. tour with Seven Dust and Stained. Um, just all these various things, and essentially, just to cap this off, um, we did three albums. Um, but by about 2010, I was burnt out because I I literally was like, right, I've got a chance here to experience the rock and roll lifestyle, and I just grabbed it with both hands and ran with it. And yeah. there were loads of great times. I won't. I'll be lying if I say there were there weren't great times because there were but there were some really low times my mental health suffered massively i i was the size of a house because i was just drinking too much because it was so accessible you know the riders and etc so 2010 we were this is crazy but i was i was yeah i tried to quit the band about two or three times during this period and and during this time yeah on on the outs looking on the outside in you'd think i'd be crazy because we were headlining one of the stages at Download Festival. Uh, we were on a bill, a couple of bills of Metallica. It was us, uh, Addison Chains, Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, Devil Driver. Wow. Um, nice. Just crazy, crazy times that, that, you know, it's almost like looking back. I'm looking back, it's like a different person when I, when I think about this stuff. But all the time that is happening and, and what, what has continued to happen over the years is that I've managed to grab nuggets of mentorship from bands so I got to speak to Metallica and get some words from them and uh, I went on to go and work with um, a guy called Alan Niven for a while who, who was a manager for Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction and just pick up all these bits about what the real music industry is in terms of the high spec super high level and I never for a moment thought we were in that bracket because we weren't but we were able to get that little bit of access to people and bands like that and just like just watch them side stage, for example. Seeing seeing Alison Chain side stage or, or or seeing how you know Metallica work and, and everything, all the logistics and the, the environments and the people and how they navigate that. It 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 was an eye-opener. But by 2010, I was I was crashing massively. You know, we weren't earning loads of money we weren't earning enough money to pay the bills and throughout all that period from 2003 to eventually 2011 when we we split up um i had a job on the side just to make sure the bills were being paid mm. um because literally any money we were making we were sinking back into the band and then arguably we probably weren't covering enough with that as well just mm. because of the nature there's there's five of you in the band you know, you've got these traveling costs. You know, we were traveling all over the world. We we're traveling, especially Europe, traveling to Poland to play to 250,000 people, um, Polish Woodstock and Belgium. And it's crazy. It's amazing. But yeah. Absolutely yeah. Mind, mind boggling. Me now, 46, yeah, about 747. I'm like, screw that. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I want to stay home in my slippers and 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 help bands where i can but um yeah for, for eight or nine years i i lived the, the rock and roll lifestyle and um it was great for the most part but yeah it was uh, there are many challenges out there if you're not ready for them they can hit you like a freight train cliche number 700 right there <laughs> hit you like a freight train <laughs> well i mean 
gosh, there's there's something specifically I'd like to ask you about the, the beginning of the band, but what you just highlighted to me there is something I encounter on a regular, regular basis doing what I do, considering I only really caught fire on alternative music in my early 20s, and I'm now 27. There's always something more for me to learn, and there's always like one more great band from a previous period that I didn't know about. Um, only really, I want to say, like four or five months ago, did I really take a deep dive into Municipal Waste. They're amazing. Oh, okay. Like, they're, yeah. amazing. They're, they're one of these bands. Like, I, I saw them at Download um, before Slayer played their last ever UK show. And I really enjoyed, like, I really enjoyed the set and stuff, but, like, they weren't a band that I'd ever gone and checked out. I, I was meant to go and check them out after, but you know how it gets. And then literally, like, three or four weeks ago, I was like, Municipal Waste, they were really great at download, and, like, the crowd's amazing. I should check that out. I should check them out. And they're amazing. And what you just highlighted to me there is probably something that a lot of people that got into alternative music around the same time as me. There's such a plethora of great music that's lived through alternative music from the 80s to this current period, it's actually almost impossible to have uncovered every gem, right? Because I, there's in a sense, I feel like ill-informed or badly researched that I didn't know this about you, but I, I'd never heard the name Panic Set, even though from what you're telling me, you were a legitimate big deal in that 2005 to early 2010s period. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were we were unsigned. We, you know, we, we literally just did the hard, hard work and relationships and whatnot and people did think we were signed but it was literally us just just working our socks off and networking and playing the game um and i mean what your boy pointed there about municipal waste you know i mean i love it when you discover bands even though they might be 20 30 years old i love it when when a piece of music actually resonates with you and makes you want to explore them further and you just discover this treasure of music and songs and that's that's for me as good as it gets that's the best feeling that the songs the music and whatnot and there's almost a part of me that wants to say you don't want to sort of pull the curtain back too far on the music industry because mm. it's uh it's a bit of it's a bit of fantasy going on there's a lot of passion there's a lot of dare i say ego um but if you want to work in the music industry you've got to find a way to um what's the word i'm looking for here you've got to you got to toughen up you've got your, your skin you've got a hard heart hard skin whatever the word is here the terminology i'm trying to use here you've got You've got to be prepared for the battles. You've got to be prepared for the slings and arrows. Um, but there are, as any any environment, there's there's opportunities and challenges to be had. You just got to, you just got to do your due diligence, haven't you? You just got to understand what it is you're getting yourself into and how best that you can navigate. It. And the good news is that we, you know this isn't 2005 anymore. This is 2021, and there are a number of resources where you can go and discover how the music industry works, how music business works, how best to navigate the environment and maintain and sustain really good relationships that can benefit all everyone at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, sort of off topic there a little bit, but yeah. No, no, uh, please. I, I appreciate that. It's, it's interesting to, to discuss this stuff um, because as I said, you know, talking about Panic Cell, I've I got no regrets to that band and I wish everyone the very best that, that, that played in the band and 
I still speak to some of the guys and it, it's, it's a, an experience that will take with me to my, to my death, you know, to my dark, my death, you know, yeah. it's, it's something I'd never regret, but there were many challenges and it's, you know, it's only been the last few years that I've sort of been able to get my head around it and realise actually it was a great experience and that I, I feel very grateful for it. Well, by the sounds of the time frame that you're discussing with me in terms of Panic Cells kind of inception, that would, 2003 would have been, you know, new metal kind of came yeah. and then died, died out just yeah. as quickly, right? I mean, in 2001, I was seven, I was like eight years old. I knew who Limp Bizkit were. I knew who Korn were. Like, new metal had, had kind of wasn't just this growth on the back of alternative music. New metal kind of was alternative music. It was everywhere. Um, and it was like literally inescapable. And yeah. the the heights that the heights that alternative music saw in new metal, I don't actually know whether we've seen again since. In fact, we in fact I'm fairly confident to say that we haven't. So starting a band in 2003, what was it like circumnavigating that kind of uh, metal minefield where new metal was just about to die and you're starting a new band when new metal had previously been the biggest thing that everyone is talking about? In terms of like a, a, a business, I mean, you know, the band was easy because we just, we had, it was the first band I've been in where there was five driven people and everyone brought something to the table. And they also had relationships in the music business or were determined to work their asses off, uh, which is, in my case, that, that is definitely the case. I was just ready to work my ass off. Um, I just knew there was something, something that's going to happen with the band. And um, as soon as I got, you know, I, I basically joined the band about auditioning because it was a friend that recommended me and we got along and it was great. But as soon as, as soon as I quickly understood what was going on, I quit my job. I literally, I quit my full-time job and I was like, I'm just going to temp and do what I can to, you know, further this band. And so that, that was, that was quite straightforward. Um, what was different for us was that um, we had relationships with people in the music business. I mean, um, Luke, Luke Bell, who, who's now like a TM, his last job I think he had, he was tour manager for Machine Head. But you know he he was he was like from the off. He was like he's a he's a he means it. He's gonna really really further the band, and I I could see it a mile off, which encouraged me to quit my job. But Luke, you know, essentially was already talking to people like Andy Sleep, um, you know, Grammy Award winning producer, Killswitch Engage, End of Heartache, etc. Back in two thousand three, we're talking. So he's emerging. He's an emerging um, producer already. I mean, he'd already been doing Testament and, and various other big big bands. But we were talking to the likes of Andy, um, look at other, other avenues as well. And that that was a strong part of why Panic Cell succeeded. And various other members were working in the industry, uh, guitar um, companies, uh, others, others brought business skills. And it, we, we just had so many tools in the toolkit and it enabled us to quickly develop relationships and for things to happen that would normally be exclusive for major label bands, like having music videos and be able to get on Scuds TV, which, which back in 2003 was really expensive. It was pre-digital. You were still working with tape. So you had to get, had to get the, 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 the movie shot, the film shot. And we were lucky we knew someone that worked in the, as, a, as a cameraman 
um, stroke producer. He he was working on Harry Potter at the time, the Gladiator film with Russell Crowe. Amazing, it's crazy. It's, it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. But we had, we had access to studios that we couldn't, well, no one could normally get access to because he was working on the sets of these films. We were going to London and spend the day filming music videos. And um, and then Luke knew how to get them onto Sky's TV, Kerrang TV. And before you knew it, we were, yeah, we were hitting big audiences very quickly. We had a website as well um, because Kelly was um, one of the guitar, guitarists knew how to build websites properly. And back then, it was, it was again, it was a very exclusive situation. Um, you had to knew how to code websites. You, you had to have access to FTP servers and all these different things. You'd, we had our own merch store online, which is, was pretty exclusive back then. It, it, it was just, we just had the tools and we had the determination and the conviction and we knew something was going to happen. And I'm not trying to be big headed about that, but we just, you just know there's moments in, in our lives where we just know something's going to happen. I can't explain it. You just know it in your gut. You must, you must have had these sort of yeah, moments. Yeah, I know what you're referring to. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that self-drive, that determination, that conviction, that vision. And when you have five people shaking their legs at the same time, things can happen. And for a while, we're all shaking our legs in the same direction at the same time, and big things happened. And even when it eventually got to a point where we weren't all shaking our legs in the same direction, big things were still happening just because we, we, we were driven and we, were, we had roots to industry organisations and people that um, were pretty much exclusive at that point. But yeah, um, business, music business. I on the ball with music business yeah. and relationships all the time and, and just trying to write the best songs you possibly can and, and get them seen and heard. Easier said than done, but it is possible. Yeah. <laughs> Once the time come that Panic Cell was over for you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but was it like, right, okay, I'm out of a band, I'm still going to work in the music industry though? Was that, did you, like, was you kind of already, you said that you tried to quit the band two or three times. Were you kind yeah. of already working towards Stampede Press before you could actually work towards Stampede Press, if you know what I mean? No, I completely, it was a complete fluke. Um, right, okay, okay. I was, I was literally on my knees. Uh, as I said, I was the size of a house. I was drinking far too much. I wasn't eating healthily. And I remember downloads being in pieces with my then girlfriend who who's now my wife and and saying I just want to quit and even though you know we, we're, we're we're headlining I think Red Bull stage at download which is one of the smaller stages but still we were we were headlining yeah, still, it, it yeah. was a big deal we were you know, we were we had dates with Alice Cooper Papa Roach Metallica all Crazy. That stuff. yeah and there's me going I want to quit yeah and Oh, the, you know, it seems, it seems bonkers, but when your your well being is that poor and your mental health so poor, you you, I guess I was trying to self sabotage. I couldn't, I didn't have the grit or resilience that I I did, but I didn't realize I had it. So I was I was like, well, I'm giving up and giving up, and I did actually leave in 2011, and the band carried on, but then. I think the wheels had just come off the bus by that point. I, I think we'd already lost two members. 
uh, and me going, who was, um, I, uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty integral without trying to be big headed, but yeah, I did yeah. a lot of administration work and I did a lot of, well, I just generally did a lot and I'm not trying to boast or anything, but you know, it's business at the end of the day. And if, if the person isn't operating the business and they're gone and it's left to only one person, then ultimately there's only so far a band's going to go without it. So essentially what happened in 2011, I quit and then the band decided to call it a day and they were lucky enough to have been asked to play Sonosphere and Nebworth. Um, and they were kind enough to, to call me up and say, look, we're, we're, we're splitting up, but we want you to come back for one last gig at Sonosphere, um, which was amazing. You know, we, we, we played to a, full capacity audience so it was just like quite emotional how many people actually turned up considering we were an unsigned self-managed band and that will stay with me for the rest of my life but but at that point when it was finally the that part of the journey had come to an end I didn't know what I was going to do and um I was struggling at the time with mental health my my my, my then girlfriend who is now my wife her father had recently passed away suddenly from cancer and we were having to manage family affairs and whatnot. And I think actually at the time, I, I think a couple of us tried forming another band called Seven Deadly. And but I, I just I wasn't I wasn't ready for it. I was in pieces still. And and so eventually, um, I did sit myself down and go, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, I, I, I didn't want to go back to a traditional job. Um, so. Essentially, what happened, I, I remember actually, it's coming back to me now. Um, we we moved, I moved from Kent, I used to live in Chatham in Kent, up to Norfolk, um, and re, yeah, essentially relocated and started afresh. And I made a little bit of money off the sale of a house so I could afford to not have to have to have a job. And I spent my time focusing on the well being of, of my wife and her family while they, you know, they, they um, ventured around the whole horrific episode of um, her dad passing away and I was able to help out where I could with that. And I think that was meant to be. Um, I honestly think that was meant to be. That's how it was meant to pan out. But eventually I, I sat myself down. Like, what am I going to do? Um, I don't want to go back to law job. What am I going to do? And someone offered up starting a publicity company. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Because I, I did a lot of publicity for Panic Cell. I did a, did a lot of PR and stuff in-house for Panic Cell. So... Once I got my head around that, once I got a framework and decided what I was going to do, I was like, right, any clients? Yeah. And um, it was that point I just thought, I thought to myself, well, okay, you've, you know, you've been part of a band that's achieved a lot on their, on their own terms and steam. Can, what can I do on my own? So I set myself a challenge. First of all, if I did launch a PR company, I wasn't going to refer to Panic Cell. I wasn't going to be known as Bobby Town because mm. that was my name in the band. I, I, just, I was going to be Rob Town or, or Rob Stampede. I wasn't going to refer to Panic Cell. I wasn't going to do anything like that. I was just going to try and see what I could do on my own merits. And I started reaching out to um, established artists. Um, so my first client, I guess, was a band called Terror Vision. Just reached out to them. And um, because my CV and my bio um, presented me in a professional manner, and I managed to get to talk to them and inject the enthusiasm and passion into the conversation, 
I was able to work with them. And then that lead, led to other things like um, uh, Toby Jepson and uh, Winger, Kip Winger. So essentially, you know, established legacy bands. And that really helped get my foot in the door with other um, bands and, and crucially with um, press and media outlets um, like yourself, you know, eventually. Um, it, it, was, it was just simply a case of I needed to do science and the PR seemed the most natural route. But as I mentioned earlier, it, it evolved into something a lot bigger than that. Um, it evolved into mentoring, education for, for artists that might prob- probably, most likely didn't have the experiences that I did um, working with um, major label artists or, or major um, promoters and managers and booking agents and all that and all the conversations I had around that. So. I boiled it all down and tried to um, filter it across to to the bands with my discussions whenever we were doing campaigns. And yeah, I, it was a different approach, but it, it worked out in the end. You know, um, that's all I can say, really. It just worked out. Well, you mentioned, you, mentioned your, <laughs> you mentioned your approach there. And that's something that I've been thinking about discussing with you because of the amount of experience that you've got. Sometimes um, in life, the best way to teach someone is to let them make mistakes, right? So they've got something yeah. to learn from. For yourself, yeah. is it difficult for you to navigate when to say to a band, listen, don't do it this way. That's a mistake, trust me. And when to be like, right, well, you know, if I, if I try and spoon feed them everything, eventually I might not be around and they're going to make the decision anyway. So let's let them, you know, if they, if they make this mistake, it would be a good learning curve for them. Is it difficult to choose what advice to give and when i always go in with uh, don't crush them don't crush their dreams um because it's it can be quite easy to do that um and and besides which you know if they're determined they'll they'll just deflect that kind of conversation so it's ne- it's never about crushing dreams it's always about encouraging and, and nurturing them and for the most part yeah you are right i mean you've ultimately got got to have your own journey but if if i strongly feel that a band is about to make a huge mistake and they've taken the time to come to me and pose me the question then i will give them the most honest answer that encourages them to find another way um there's just no way that i can crush anyone's dreams we've all got a We've all got our passions and we all got to find a way to do it. But if there's a way to avoid the common pitfalls, that's the way I approach it. I will sort of anecdotes, I guess, is the best way of putting it. It's like, well, when, when I was in panic cell, we did X, Y, and Z, and it resulted in X, Y, and Z, um, most likely because one of us was probably too drunk and we <laughs> said something to the wrong person, you know? So it's, <laughs> Yeah. It's 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 a it's a it's quite a common thread actually when you're discussing with bands about things and it is just trying to help them avoid the common pitfall, pitfalls and just avoid that and fast track them to the good good spots so they can build on their strengths and look at their weaknesses and go well you know we're not that good at certain respects of our things our songwriting might need improving but we can work on that or our business skills might need um, improving but we can work on that. But as in in terms of success, in terms of preparing them for success, the potential success, I mean that's just just like an unknown. Yeah. I I I basically say to bands like, yeah, success is how you measure it. If you're if you're aiming to earn 
a full-time living off your music, then chances are you're going to be disappointed. Mm. But if you're able to work out where the revenue streams are in your music and maybe even dip your toe outside the music in more sort of traditional businesses where there is money, then you're more likely to succeed and be happy. Um, yeah, it, it, you, you, you have to balance it. You can't crush the dream, but go in at the right times and give them the advice and then ultimately the end decision is there, isn't it? I think one of the great things about the music industry is that Stampede Press has existed for less than a decade, but already the music industry feels like a completely different beast than it did in 2013. Mm. Like, yeah. when, when I, without obviously making this interview about myself, of course, but when I started to get into alternative music in my early 20s, literally now, only seven years later, the existence and the, the forefront that Spotify and streaming services is. I mean, uh, did they exist in, in like 2013? Possibly, but certainly not to the same revenue stream or to the same level of uh, relevance and importance that they do mm. now. Um, yeah. So you, when, when you started in 2013, was there a kind of way, a ripple of a way that you had to kind of ride to, to kind of acquaint yourself with this really forward, fast-paced digital, digital age? I mean, I, I, I just carried on the way I had been for the, 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 the previous 10 years. Um, it, was, it was definitely fast-moving, but nowhere near as what it is now. But I literally had been working with computers every day since 2003 um, in terms of, like, social media, website management, all these different things. So... It was it was just like a natural step for me. I mean, Spotify that time was it was a you know it was nothing like it is now. Um, I mean, the early days of Spotify, if I remember rightly, you had to get an invite to use right. Spotify, um, and Facebook was you know the algorithms weren't anything like they are now. You know, mm. you were able to put out a post and get huge amounts of of likes on posts very very quickly. Uh, I guess the shift was um, the, the evolution of the iPhone, which was introduced in 2007. Uh, also, the, the the way broadband has, has come on as well, the speed and the accessibility of people having smartphones now and how many people are actually on social media. It was very, it was, it was a lot smaller than compared to those. So it, was, it was quite manageable. Um and I'd also offer, you know, back then, um, home production was still evolving. Um, it wasn't at the level that it is now. Um, bands were still, um, yes, they were utilising home production, but they were still going to studios more often than not. Um, it, was, it, was, it was, I guess, a short summary answer. It was, it was very manageable. I never felt under pressure. I never felt... Um, like I might do nowadays with social media, for example, where I have to take a sort of step away now and again and just not look at screens. It didn't feel like I was stuck to my screen but that, that, back then. But I'm got, I, I guess yeah, at the end of the day, I, w- I was prepared for it. I was, I was ready for it. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a grafter. Mm. I, will, I will put the necessary work in and, and stampede. You know, I quickly um, built up a small roster of bands that were worldwide. So... I again, I was still suffering from mental health issues back then, and I, I guess I kind of amplified them even more because I ended up working like twenty four hours a day because I 
had, I had clients in America, I had them in Australia, and I was getting messages at all times of day. And, and that, that was a steep learning curve. Like, how do, you, how do you manage clients all over the world? And the simple answer is, well, you can't on your own. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like anything, eventually you find your way, you work out what works for you and focus on that. And whatever doesn't work for you, just kick to the curb. This is a long question. Um, so uh, I do apologise if I struggle to keep you to keep you with me. But I'm a big fan of Terry Beezer, um, or aka Bees. Um, mm. And he, when he was on That's Not Metal podcast, he was talking about there was once a time where there was so much money in the music industry that he was at a magazine may very well have been metal hammer when he was literally a teenager, possibly still. Uh, and they walked up to him and like, have you got a passport? Uh, there's a band traveling around America going to send you there just to follow him around, I guess. Um, you know, there was that much money that a, like a 17, 18 year old kid was being sent to America just to follow this band around, just to do a bit of press on them, which now really you would only find if they, you know, they're going to be on the front cover or would they even do that? They'd probably just do it through Zoom just to, to do all the interviews through Zoom and, and save all the all the costs. So at one point there was absurd, absurd amounts of money in the music industry. And it is still absolutely a very affluent industry to be a part of. However, I think everyone would acknowledge there's not the same level of money in music as there was 20 years ago. With that, I would assume, and I've never been in the band and I, I'm not musically inclined in terms of playing an instrument at all. I'm literally just a fan. But with that, I would assume that then the clients that you get now, you are it's very quick and easy for you to tell that they really want it. For example, Haxon, a band that you work with, it's incredibly apparent that they really, really want it. They're not like, mm. this isn't like a pastime for them. They, they adore music as opposed to possibly in the early 2000s. There's loads of money in the music industry, bands. And I don't mean to knock new metal here, but from the new metal I've gone back and listened to, a lot of them weren't very good. Um, so for you, with there being less money in the music industry, does it then mean for you that you're more likely to come across a band that they are doing this because they love it and not because there's a chance that they'll get a fat six uh, figure paycheck at the end. I think the, pe- I think the penny's definitely dropping more and more with bands nowadays. Um, I get less bands talking about wanting to be rock stars and full-time musicians and I'm asking more questions about how can we earn money from being a band or how can I, you know, have an income, a more regular income. And um, I mean, Haxon are a great example. Um, I've worked very closely with those um, with those, those guys. Um, and, uh, you know, Sam, especially Sam, vocalist, guitarist, extremely switched on, extremely driven, extremely realistic. Um, you know, she, she and the rest of the rest of the band, they, 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 they know what they want. They know how to find the roots. They know how to navigate. They're not, having the wool pulled over their eyes. And those are the sort of bands that I want to work with because I, I, I rate the music as well. I think, I think the, the album they produced last year, I think massive step up compared to their previous effort. And I, I made sure I told them that. And every time, Chris, it's like songs, focus on the songwriting because that's what's going to help cut you through. Get you, cut you through the white, no- white noise, and no pun intended. That was a, the album name. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've got to quickly say that I, I don't earn a full time living from Stampy Press. Um, 
purely because I, I, I believe in quality over quantity. Mm. And it goes back to my point about not wanting to saturate the market and overburden you with loads of releases. It's like literally, if I take on a band, it's like, well, okay, what are the opportunities and challenges here? So more often than not, it is going to be a case, as I said earlier, you know, relationship management. Do I get on well with the band? Do they have a vision that I can draw on to and get involved with? Are they passionate? Because ultimately, I, I need to be, I want to be valued as, as a trusted and honest, honest person in this industry and help other musicians to find a way to be happy and to, to be successful and understand what success truly means to them. Um, so it, you know, it's not it's not a full time full time income for me. So that that's why I do Stampy. That's why I do um, Lightning in a Bottle. That's why I do work with Water Bear. Mm. That's why I run a small social media business that works with traditional businesses. That's why I mentor. That's why I tutor. I got I got all these different revenue paths. You know, um, which I love. And some people might go, well, that's just too much. You know, it's like 2019. I, I studied, studied for a master's, master's degree. I saw this, yeah. And um, just literally, I, I, I've been out of education for nearly 30 years. You know, I, I, I quit college. Well, I, I basically, but college in 1992, I dropped out of because I was just more interested in playing the band. But mm. thankfully, because of the experience, I was able to do a master's degree. And that taught me so much. And it's helped me so much. And I, I try and impart that onto bands, not necessarily to get into the education aspect of themselves, but at the very least do the basic research and understand how they might be able to earn money from what is um, an extremely competitive, saturated market. But there are opportunities out there to earn revenue, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean... The, the, you know, if we're realistic here, if, I, if I'm being brutally honest here, the only people that are making real money from music are the owners of Spotify and the big four <laughs> yeah. record labels. Yeah. Um, which hopefully, you know, we're going to see reconciled at some point in the near future. But until then, it's like, okay, well, you know, Spotify is your shop window. You've got tons of people walking past the shop. How do you get them to stop and look at your mm. shop window long enough to want to go into the shop? have a conversation, you know, do a bit of browsing, have a conversation with you, the shopkeeper, and turn them in into a customer that mm. is actually paying paying you money. It's, it's never been a better time to be in a band. I'd, I'd, I'd argue this till the cows come home. It's yeah. like if you can connect with your fans, you've got the ways to have a direct customer, a D2C customer, or D2F, I should say, direct to fan um, relationship, which can turn into money. It's amazing. Amazing. Rob, we're going to have to get you on once a year, I think, because uh, there's so much <laughs> more that I wanted to talk to you about, but we're just coming up to uh, the end of our time together here. Um, just before, I mean, I've got a quick fire round that I do with all of our uh, guests where I'll give you 20 questions and see how quickly you can answer them. Um, just oh, before we do that, I am curious. Um, for you, what is the one 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 critical mistake that you see bands about to make that you have to kind of or attempt to pull the reins in on where of all the bands that you've worked with what do you think is, is the one area that is most common to come up when you're discussing ways that they could think about doing something differently not being patient enough right. um key one the other one is is not understanding the power of real relationships you know, that benefit both parties. They're two common mistakes I see every day. 
just before and I, just before I start the quick fire round here, um, Rob, there's a chance that someone's going to be listening to this that feels a bit like you did in 2011, where they feel like they're in an opportunity that they're obliged to carry on doing because that's what they should be doing, but their heart really isn't in it. And I'd imagine that's a very difficult emotional push and pull uh, to put yourself through, especially considering the difficulties you were experiencing at that time as well. Um, is there one leading piece of advice you would give someone who does feel in the position where really I should carry on because it's a good opportunity, but my heart isn't here? Get some mentoring. Um, if you know anyone that's, that's well experienced in the music business, try and get some time with them. Consider... You know, if you have to pay a little bit of money, as long as that person has got a proven, credible track record and they have your best interests at heart, pay a bit of money if you have to. Um, I mean, if you go on the standbpress.co.uk, I've got a free guide, 21 Essential Things to PR Marketing, which actually involves how to be a, how to enjoy the human experience of being in a band as well. And there's a load of free info in that. But yeah, talk 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 to someone that, that, that's, that's either been in your shoes or has your well-being at heart talking is just like one of the most cathartic things ever i think we we, we take it we take it for granted but actually if we do have these problems and, and a weight of the world on our shoulders having a good chat with someone can can be a game changer this interview was so fascinating, so interesting, so great that I didn't even mention uh, you wrote a book that you that you just mentioned. Uh, we spoke of that much interesting stuff that I didn't even mention the ebook, uh, which is free. Isn't it? You can get through your website. I actually downloaded it uh, last night and read through the first like twenty pages or so. It's actually really incredibly informative, even for someone like me who, who like I say, is really just a fan and it isn't really musically inclined, has never been in a band. Really incredibly informative. So I, for, especially for free, I'd recommend anyone in any band to just have that, uh, absolutely give that a look. See, I, oh, thank, thank you, Chris. I mean, a big part of the reason why I did it was to try and help bands understand how to best approach people like you. Um, that, that was one of the key things. Again, one of the common mistakes I get, I see all the time, is, is bands knocking on the doors of, of, of media outlets like yourself. And, and not handling the process well, you know, and um, that's that's definitely a reason why I wrote it. So it's just so I got a better informed decision, way to make better informed decisions so that knowledge is power and all that jazz. Rob, I absolutely am going to approach you again at some point in the future to come back <laughs> on because there's loads more that I'd like to discuss with you. But as we leave off, we are going to start my quick fire round. Uh, this is 20 questions. We are going to see uh, how quickly you can get through them. We have got quite a leaderboard going on at the moment. Uh, I believe the quickest band member uh, that I've got was possibly one minute and 30 seconds uh, vocalist from the Young Hearts, although I would have to go back and check. However, if you say, wow. I'm going to start, I'm going to start a timer when you're ready and we're going to go through 20 questions uh, and we're going to see how quickly you can go. When you're ready, Rob. Okay, let's do this. Let's go. Uh, Batman or Superman? Batman. So opera is good or bad? Bad. Favourite band of all time? Oh God! <laughs> Already? <laughs> um, oh, dream theatre. Um, would you rather be too hot or too cold? Too cold. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Favorite album of all time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, dream theatre, images and words. Star Wars or Star Trek? Ah, uh, Star Wars. You can only save one: Sigourney Weaver or Julia Roberts. Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver. 
Uh, the favourite PR campaign you've ever worked on? Uh, that would be a tough God. one, I'd imagine, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Chris for that. Uh, Metallica or Maiden? Metallica. ACDC or Guns N' Roses? Guns N' Roses. Favourite gig you've ever been to? Um, Bruce Springsteen. Awesome. 1984, 85. Awesome. I think. My co host Sam's a massive Springsteen fan. I bet he wishes oh, he was mate, here. <laughs> Your favourite non musical <laughs> hobby? Um, oh my God. Um, <laughs> uh, just going for a walk. <laughs> uh, your favourite time of the day? Uh, first thing in the morning. Jeans or shorts? Jeans. Favourite TV show of all time? Uh, uh, I'm watching Taskmaster at tons of moments. So Taskmaster. Awesome. Uh, you can only save one. Harrison Ford or Sylvester Stallone? Harrison Ford. Uh, your favourite decade of music? Uh, 90s. Awesome. It should be. Uh, best festival you've <laughs> ever been to? Uh, I'd say Bloodstock. Awesome. Uh, and just finish off the best piece of advice you could give to a young band. Stay true to yourselves. Be passionate about making music. You're a creative artist. It's a privilege. It's an amazing thing. Never lose sight of your love for music. Just clocked in just over two minutes there, Rob. However, <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did chuck in some difficult ones for you on purpose. And I do apologise for that. Um, no worries. Rob, as we finish off, uh, unbelievably uh, fascinating chat. And I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to uh, to speak to me. I'm absolutely going to approach you again uh, to come back on at some point because there's there's just so much that we didn't even get time to cover. Um, so thank you for your time today. Uh, Stampede Press is um, an organisation that I've always been happy to work with, always had a great experience working with you. And I want to thank you again for your time. Oh, Chris, you're amazing, mate. Thank you very much for having me. That, that was fun, that last 20, 20 questions. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Take care. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. See ya.